This is Audible. Harper Audio presents The Last Battle by C.S. Lewis, performed by Patrick Stewart. Chapter 1 By Cauldron Pool In the last days of Narnia, far up to the west beyond Lantern Waste, and close beside the great waterfall, there lived an ape. He was so old that no one could remember when he had first come to live in those parts, and he was the cleverest, ugliest, most wrinkled ape you can imagine. He had a little house built of wood and thatched with leaves up in the fork of a great tree, and his name was Shift. There were very few talking beasts or men or dwarfs or people of any sort in that part of the wood, but Shift had one friend and neighbor who was a donkey called Puzzle. At least they both said they were friends, but from the way things went on, you might have thought Puzzle was more like Shift's servant than his friend. He did all the work. When they went together to the river, Shift filled the big skin bottles with water, but it was Puzzle who carried them back. When they wanted anything from the towns further down the river, it was Puzzle who went down with empty panniers on his back and came back with the panniers full and heavy. And all the nicest things that Puzzle brought back were eaten by Shift. For, as Shift said, You see, Puzzle, I can't eat grass and thistles like you, so it's only fair I should make it up in other ways. And Puzzle always said, Oh, course, Shift, of course I see that. Puzzle never complained, because he knew that Shift was far cleverer than himself, and he thought it was very kind of Shift to be friends with him at all. And if ever Puzzle did try to argue about anything, Shift would always say, Now, Puzzle, I understand what needs to be done better than you. You know you're not clever, Puzzle. And Puzzle always said, No, Shift, it's quite true, I, I'm not clever. Then he would sigh and do whatever Shift had said. One morning early in the year, the pair of them were out walking along the shore of Cauldron Pool. Cauldron Pool is the big pool right under the cliffs at the western end of Narnia. The great waterfall pours down into it with a noise like everlasting thunder, and the river of Narnia flows out on the other side. The waterfall keeps the pool always dancing and bubbling and churning round and round, as if it were on the boil, and that, of course, is how it got its name of Cauldron Pool. It is liveliest in the early spring, when the waterfall is swollen with all the snow that has melted off the mountains from up beyond Narnia in the western wild from which the river comes. And as they looked at Cauldron Pool, Shift suddenly pointed with his dark, skinny finger and said, "'Look, what's that?' "'What's what?' said Puzzle. "'That yellow thing that just come down the waterfall. "'Look, there it is again. It's floating. "'We must find out what it is.' "'Must we?' said Puzzle. "'Of course we must,' said Shift. "'It may be something useful. "'Just hop into the pool like a good fellow and fish it out. "'Then we can have a proper look at it.' "'Hop into the pool?' said Puzzle, twitching his long ears. "'Well, 
"'How are we to get it out if you don't?' said the ape. "'But, but,' said Puzzle, "'wouldn't it be better if you went in? "'Because, you see, it's you who wants to know what it is, "'and I don't much, and, and you've got hands, you see. "'You're as good as a man or a dwarf when it comes to catching hold of things. "'I've only got hooves.' "'Really, Puzzle,' said Shift. "'I didn't think you'd ever say a thing like that. "'I didn't think it of you. Really. "'Why, what have I said wrong?' said the ass, speaking in rather a humble voice, for he saw that Shift was very deeply offended. All I meant was wanting me to go into the water, said the ape, as if you didn't know perfectly well what weak chests apes always have, and how easily they catch cold. Very well. I will go in. I'm feeling cold enough already in this cruel wind, but I'll go in. I shall probably die. "'Then you'll be sorry!' "'And Shift's voice sounded as if he was just going to burst into tears. Oh, "'Please don't, please don't, please don't!' said Puzzle, "'half braying and half talking. "'I never meant anything of the sort, Shift. Really, I didn't. "'You know how stupid I am and how I can't think of more than one thing at a time. "'I'd forgotten about your weak chest.' "'Of course, I'll go in. "'You mustn't think of doing it yourself. "'Promise me you won't shift.' "'So Shift promised, "'and Puzzle went, cloppity-clop, "'on his four hooves round the rocky edge of the pool "'to find a place where he could get in. "'Quite apart from the cold, "'it was no joke getting into that quivering and foaming water, "'and Puzzle had to stand and shiver for a whole minute "'before he made up his mind to do it.' But then Shift called out from behind him and said, "'Perhaps I'd better do it after all, Puzzle.' And when Puzzle heard that, he said, "'No, no, you promised. I'm in now.' And in he went. A great mass of foam got him in the face and filled his mouth with water and blinded him. Then he went under altogether for a few seconds, and when he came up again he was in quite another part of the pool.' Then the swirl caught him and carried him round and round and faster and faster till it took him right under the waterfall itself and the force of the water plunged him down, deep down, so that he thought he would never be able to hold his breath till he came up again. And when he had come up and when at last he got somewhere near the thing he was trying to catch, it sailed away from him till it too got under the fall and was forced down to the bottom. When it came up again, it was further from him than ever. But at last, when he was almost tired to death and bruised all over and numb with cold, he succeeded in gripping the thing with his teeth, and out he came, carrying it in front of him and getting his front hooves tangled up in it, for it was as big as a large hearthrug, and it was very heavy and cold and slimy. He flung it down in front of Shift and stood dripping and shivering and trying to get his breath back. But the ape, never looked at him or asked him how he felt. The ape was too busy going round and round the thing and spreading it out and patting it and smelling it. Then a wicked gleam came into his eye and he said, "'It's a lion skin.' "'Ee-oh, is it?' gasped Puzzle. "'Now, I wonder, I wonder. I wonder, I wonder, 
said Shift to himself, for he was thinking very hard. "'I wonder who killed the poor lion,' said Puzzle presently. "'It ought to be buried. We must have a funeral.' "'Oh, it wasn't a talking lion,' said Shift. "'You needn't bother about that. "'There are no talking beasts up beyond the falls, up in the western wild. "'This skin must have belonged to a dumb wild lion.' This, by the way, was true. A hunter, a man, had killed and skinned this lion somewhere up in the western wild several months before, but that doesn't come into this story. All the same shift, said Puzzle. Even if the skin only belonged to a dumb wild lion, aren't we to give it a decent burial? I mean, aren't all lions rather, well, rather solemn, because of... "'You know who? Don't you see?' "'Don't you start getting ideas into your head, Puzzle,' said Shift. "'Because you know thinking isn't your strong point. "'We'll make this skin into a fine, warm winter coat for you.' "'Oh, I don't think I'd like that,' said the donkey. "'It would look... I mean, the other beasts might think... "'That is to say, I, I shouldn't... Feel. What are you talking about? said Shift, scratching himself the wrong way up as apes do. I don't think it would be respectful to the great lion, to Aslan himself, if an ass like me went about dressed up in a lion's skin, said Puzzle. Now don't start arguing, please, said Shift. What does an ass like you know about things of that sort? You know you're no good at thinking, Puzzle, so why don't you let me do your thinking for you? Why don't you treat me as I treat you? I don't think I can do everything. I know you're better at some things than I am. That's why I let you go into the pool. I knew you'd do it better than me. But why can't I have my turn when it comes to something I can do and you can't? Am I never to be allowed to do anything? Do be fair. Turn and turn about. Oh, well, of course, if you put it that way, said Puzzle. I tell you what, said Shift. You'd better take a good brisk trot down river as far as Chippingford and see if they have any oranges or bananas. But I'm so tired, Shift, pleaded Puzzle. Yes, but you're very cold and wet, said the ape. You want something to warm you up. A brisk trot will be just the thing. Besides, it's market day at Chippingford today. And then, of course, Puzzle said he would go. As soon as he was alone, Shift went shambling along, sometimes on two paws and sometimes on four, till he reached his own tree. Then he swung himself up from branch to branch, chattering and grinning all the time, and went into his little house. He found needle and thread and a big pair of scissors there, for he was a clever ape, and the dwarfs had taught him how to sew. He put the ball of thread—it was very thick stuff, more like cord than thread— into his mouth so that his cheek bulged out as if he was sucking a big bit of toffee. He held the needle between his lips and took the scissors in his left paw. Then he came down the tree and shambled across to the lion skin. He squatted down and got to work. He saw at once that the body of the lion skin would be too long for puzzle and its neck too short. So he cut a good piece out of the body and used it to make a long collar for puzzle's long neck. Then he cut off the head and sewed the collar in between the head and the shoulders. 
He put threads on both sides of the skin so that it would tie up under Puzzle's chest and stomach. Every now and then, a bird would pass overhead, and Shift would stop his work, looking anxiously up. He did not want anyone to see what he was doing, but none of the birds he saw were talking birds, so it didn't matter. Late in the afternoon, Puzzle came back. He was not trotting, but only plodding patiently along the way donkeys do. There weren't any oranges, he said, and there weren't any bananas, and I'm very tired. He lay down. Come and try on your beautiful new lion skin coat, said Shift. Oh, bother that old skin, said Puzzle. I'll try it on in the morning. I'm too tired tonight. You are unkind, Puzzle, said Shift. If you're tired, what do you think I am? All day long, while you've been having a lovely, refreshing walk down the valley, I've been working hard to make you a coat. My paws are so tired I can hardly hold the scissors. And now you won't say thank you, and you won't even look at the coat, and you don't care. And, and, my dear Shift said, Puzzle, getting up at once. I'm so sorry. I've been horrid. Of course, I'd love to try it on, and it looks simply splendid. Do try it on me at once, please do. Well, stand still then," said the ape. The skin was very heavy for him to lift, but in the end, with a lot of pulling and pushing and puffing and blowing, he got it onto the donkey. He tied it underneath Puzzle's body, and he tied the legs to Puzzle's legs and the tail to Puzzle's tail. A good deal of Puzzle's grey nose and face could be seen through the open mouth of the lion's head. No one who had ever seen a real lion would have been taken in for a moment, but if someone who had never seen a lion looked at Puzzle in his lion skin, he just might mistake him for a lion if he didn't come too close, and if the light was not too good, and if Puzzle didn't let out a bray and didn't make any noise with his hooves. You look wonderful, wonderful," said the ape. If anyone saw you now, they'd think you were Aslan, the great lion himself. Oh, that would be dreadful," said Puzzle. "No, it wouldn't," said Shift. "Everyone would do whatever you told them." But I don't want to tell them anything. But you think of the good we could do," said Shift. "You'd have me to advise you, you know. I'd think of sensible orders for you to give." And everyone would have to obey us, even the king himself. We would set everything right in Narnia. But isn't everything right already? Said Puzzle. What? Cried Shift. Everything right when there are no oranges or bananas? Well, you know, said Puzzle. There aren't many people. In fact, I I don't. Think there's anyone but yourself who wants those sort of things? There's sugar too," said Shift. "Hmm. Yes," said the ass. "It would be nice if there was more sugar." Well, then that's settled," said the ape. "You will pretend to be Aslan, and I'll tell you what to say." "No, no, no," said Puzzle. "Don't say such dreadful things." It will be wrong, Shift. I may not be very clever, but I know that much. What would become of us if the real Aslan turned up? 
I expect he'd be very pleased, said Schiff. Probably he sent us the lion skin on purpose, so that we could set things to right. Anyway, he never does turn up, you know. Not nowadays. At that moment, there was a great thunderclap right overhead, and the ground trembled with a small earthquake. Both the animals lost their balance and were flung on their faces. There, gasped Puzzle, as soon as he had breath to speak. It's a sign, a warning. I knew we were doing something dreadfully wicked. Take this wretched skin off me at once. No, no, said the ape, whose mind worked very quickly. It's a sign the other way. I was just going to say that if the real Aslan, as you call him, meant us to go on with this, he would send us a thunderclap and an earth tremor. It was just on the tip of my tongue. Only the sign itself came before I could get the words out. You've got to do it now, Puzzle. And please don't let's have any more arguing. You know you don't understand these things. What could a donkey know about signs? Chapter 2 The Rashness of the King About three weeks later, the last of the kings of Narnia sat under the great oak which grew beside the door of his little hunting lodge, where he often stayed for ten days or so in the pleasant spring weather. It was a low, thatched building not far from the eastern end of Lantern Waste and some way above the meeting of the two rivers. He loved to live there simply and at ease, away from the state and pomp of Care Paraval, the royal city. His name was King Tyrion, and he was between twenty and twenty-five years old. His shoulders were already broad and strong, and his limbs full of hard muscle, but his beard was still scanty. He had blue eyes and a fearless, honest face. There was no one with him that spring morning except his dearest friend, Jewel, the unicorn. They loved each other like brothers, and each had saved the other's life in the wars. The lordly beast stood close beside the king's chair, with its neck bent round, polishing its blue horn against the creamy whiteness of his flank. "'I cannot set myself to any work or sport today, Jewel,' said the king. I can think of nothing but this wonderful news. Think you shall hear more of it today? They are the most wonderful tidings ever heard in our days, or our father's, or our grandfather's days, sire, said Jewel. If they are true. How can they choose but be true, said the king? It is more than a week ago that the first birds came flying over us, saying, Aslan is here, Aslan has come to Narnia again. And after that it was the squirrels. They'd not seen him, but they said it was certain he was in the woods. Then came the stag. He said he had seen him with his own eyes a great way off by moonlight in Lantern Waste. Then came that dark man with the beard, the merchant from Kalorman. The Kalormans care nothing for Aslan as we do, but the man spoke of it as a thing beyond doubt. And there was the badger last night. He, too, had seen Aslan. Indeed, sire, answered Jewel, I believe it all. If I seem not to, it is only that my joy is too great to let my belief settle itself. It is almost too beautiful to believe. Yes, 
said the king with a great sigh, almost a shiver of delight. It is beyond all that I have ever hoped for in all my life. Listen, said Jewel, putting his head on one side and cocking his ears forward. What is it? asked the king. Hooves, sire, said Jewel. A galloping horse, a very heavy horse. It must be one of the centaurs. And look, there he is. A great golden-bearded centaur, with man's sweat on his forehead and horse's sweat on his chestnut flanks, dashed up to the king, stopped, and bowed low. Hail, king, it cried in a voice as deep as a bull's. Ho there, said the king, looking over his shoulder towards the door of the hunting lodge. A bowl of wine for the noble centaur. Welcome, Runewit. When you have found your breath, you shall tell us your errand. A page came out of the house carrying a great wooden bowl, curiously carved, and handed it to the centaur. The centaur raised the bowl and said, I drink first to Aslan and truth, sire, and secondly to your majesty. He finished the wine, enough for six strong men, at one draught, and handed the empty bowl back to the page. Now, Runewit, said the king, do you bring us more news of Aslan? Runewit looked very grave, frowning a little. Sire, he said, you know how long I have lived and studied the stars, for we centaurs live longer than you men, and even longer than your kind, unicorn. Never in all my days have I seen such terrible things written in the skies as there have been nightly since this year began. The stars say nothing of the coming of Aslan, nor of peace, nor of joy. I know by my art that there have not been such disastrous conjunctions of the planets for five hundred years. It was already in my mind to come and warn your majesty that some great evil hangs over Narnia. But last night the rumor reached me that Aslan is abroad in Narnia. Sire, do not believe this tale. It cannot be. The stars never lie. But men and beasts do. If Aslan were really coming to Narnia, the sky would have foretold it. If he were really come, all the most gracious stars would be assembled in his honor. It is all a lie. A lie? said the king fiercely. What creature in Narnia or all the world would dare to lie on such a matter? And without knowing it, he laid his hand on his sword hilt. That I know, not Lord King said the centaur. But I know there are liars on earth. There are none among the stars. I wonder, said Jewel, whether Aslan might not come, though all the stars foretold otherwise. He is not the slave of the stars, but their maker. Is it not said in all the old stories that he is not a tame lion? Well said, well said, Jewel, cried the king. Those are the very words, not a tame lion. It comes in many tales. Runewitz had just raised his hand and was leaning forward to say something very earnestly to the king, 
when all three of them turned their heads to listen to a wailing sound that was quickly drawing nearer. The wood was so thick to the west of them that they could not see the newcomer yet, but they could soon hear the words. Whoa, 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 called the voice. Whoa for my brothers and sisters. Whoa for the holy trees. The woods are laid waste. The axe is loosed against us. We are being felled. Great trees are falling, falling, falling. With the last falling, the speaker came in sight. She was like a woman, but so tall that her head was on a level with the centaurs. Yet she was like a tree too. It is hard to explain if you have never seen a dryad, but quite unmistakable once you have. Something different in the color, the voice, and the hair. King Tyrion and the two beasts knew at once that she was the nymph of a beech tree. Justice, Lord King," she cried. "Come to our aid. Protect your people. They are felling us in lantern waste. Forty great trunks of my brothers and sisters are already on the ground. What, lady? Felling lantern waste, murdering the talking trees!" cried the king, leaping to his feet and drawing his sword. How dare they, and who dares it? Now, by the mane of Aslan! Uh, 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 gasped the dryad, shuddering as if in pain, shuddering time after time as if under repeated blows. Then, all at once, she fell sideways, as suddenly as if both her feet had been cut from under her. For a second, they saw her lying dead on the grass. And then she vanished. They knew what had happened. Her tree, miles away, had been cut down. For a moment, the king's grief and anger were so great that he could not speak. Then he said, "Come, friends. We must go up river and find the villains who have done this with all the speed we may." I will not leave one of them alive, sire, with a good will," said Jewel. But Runewit said, "Sire, be wary in your just wrath. There are strange doings on foot. If there should be rebels in arms further up the valley, we three are too few to meet them. If it would please you to wait while I will not wait the tenth part of a second," said the king. But. While Jewel and I go forward, do you gallop as hard as you may to Care Paravel? Here is my ring for your token. Get me a score of men at arms, all well mounted, and a score of talking dogs and ten dwarfs. Let them all be fell archers, and a leopard or so, and stone foot the giant. Bring all these after us as quickly as can be. With a good will, sire," said Runewit. And at once he turned and galloped eastward down the valley. The king strode on at a great pace, sometimes muttering to himself and sometimes clenching his fists. Jewel walked beside him, saying nothing.
so there was no sound between them but the faint jingle of a rich gold chain that hung around the unicorn's neck and the noise of two feet and four hooves. They soon reached the river and turned up it where there was a grassy road. They had the water on their left and the forest on their right. Soon after that they came to the place where the ground grew rougher and thick wood came down to the water's edge. The road, what there was of it, now ran on the southern bank, and they had to ford the river to reach it. It was up to Tyrion's armpits, but Jewel, who had four legs and was therefore steadier, kept on his right so as to break the force of the current, and Tyrion put his strong arm round the unicorn's strong neck, and they both got safely over. The king was still so angry that he hardly noticed the cold of the water. But, of course, he dried his sword very carefully on the shoulder of his cloak, which was the only dry part of him, as soon as they came to shore. They were now going westward, with the river on their right and lantern waist straight ahead of them. They had not gone more than a mile when they both stopped and both spoke at the same moment. The king said, "'What have we here?' And Jewel said, "'Look, it is a raft,' said King Tyrion. And so it was." Half a dozen splendid tree trunks, all newly cut and newly lopped of their branches, had been lashed together to make a raft and were gliding swiftly down the river. On the front of the raft there was a water rat with a pole to steer it. Hey, water rat! What are you about? cried the king. Taking logs down to sell to the Kalormen, sire, said the rat, touching his ear as he might have touched his cap if he had had one. "'Kalormans!' thundered Tyrion. "'What do you mean? Who gave order for those trees to be felled?' The river flows so swiftly at that time of the year that the raft had already glided past the king and jewel, but the water-rat looked back over its shoulder and shouted out, "'The lion's orders, sire! Aslan himself!' He added something more, but they couldn't hear it. The king and the unicorn stared at one another, and both looked more frightened than they had ever been in any battle. Aslan, said the king at last, in a very low voice. Aslan, could it be true? Could he be felling the holy trees and murdering the dryads? Unless the dryads have already done something dreadfully wrong, murmured Jewel. But selling them to Kalormans? said the king. Is it possible? I don't know, said Jewel miserably. He's not a tame lion. Well, said the king at last, we must go on and take the adventure that comes to us. It is the only thing left for us to do, sire, said the unicorn. He did not see at the moment how foolish it was for two of them to go on alone, nor did the king. They were too angry to think clearly. But much evil came of their rashness in the end. Suddenly the king leaned hard on his friend's neck and bowed his head. Jewel, he said, what lies before us? Horrible thoughts arise in my heart. If we had died before today... We should have been happy. Yes, said Jewel. We have lived too long. The worst thing in the world has come upon us.
and they stood like that for a minute or two, and then went on. Before long, they could hear the hack, hack, hack of axes falling on timber, though they could see nothing yet, because there was a rise of the ground in front of them. When they had reached the top of it, they could see right into Lantern Waste itself, and the king's face turned white when he saw it. Right through the middle of that ancient forest, that forest where the trees of gold and of silver had once grown, and where a child from our world had once planted the tree of protection, a broad lane had already been opened. It was a hideous lane, like a raw gash in the land, full of muddy ruts where felled trees had been dragged down to the river. There was a great crowd of people at work, and a cracking of whips and horses tugging and straining as they dragged at the logs. The first thing that struck the king and the unicorn was that about half the people in the crowd were not talking beasts, but men. The next thing was that these men were not the fair-haired men of Narnia. They were dark, bearded men from Kalorman, that great and cruel country that lies beyond Arkenland, across the desert to the south. There was no reason, of course, why one should not meet a Kalorman or two in Narnia, a merchant or an ambassador, for there was peace between Narnia and Kalorman in those days. But Tyrion could not understand why there were so many of them, nor why they were cutting down a Narnian forest. He grasped his sword tighter and rolled his cloak round his left arm, then came quickly down among the men. Two Kalormans were driving a horse which was harnessed to a log. Just as the king reached them, the log got stuck in a bad muddy place. "'Get on, son of a sloth! Pull, you lazy pig!' cried the Kalormans, cracking their whips. The horse was already straining himself as hard as he could. His eyes were red, and he was covered with foam. "'Work, lazy brute!' shouted one of the Kalormans, and as he spoke he struck the horse savagely with his whip. It was then that the really dreadful thing happened. Up till now Tyrion had taken it for granted that the horses which the Kalormans were driving were their own horses, dumb, witless animals like the horses of our own world. And though he hated to see even a dumb horse overdriven, he was, of course, thinking more about the murder of the trees. It had never crossed his mind that anyone would dare to harness one of the free talking horses of Narnia, much less to use a whip on it. But as that savage blow fell, the horse reared up and said, half screaming, Fool and tyrant! Do you not see I am doing all I can? When Tyrion knew that the horse was one of his own Narnians, there came over him and over Jewel such a rage that they did not know what they were doing. The king's sword went up, the unicorn's horn went down, they rushed forward together. Next moment both the Kalormans lay dead, the one beheaded by Tyrion's sword and the other gored through the heart by Jewel's horn. Chapter 3 The Ape in Its Glory 
"'Master Horse! Master Horse!' said Tyrion, as he hastily cut its traces. "'How came these aliens to enslave you? Is Narnia conquered? Has there been a battle?' "'No, sire,' panted the horse. "'Haslan is here. It is all by his orders. He has commanded—' "'Where danger, king?' said Jule. Tyrion looked up and saw that Kalormans, mixed with a few talking beasts, were beginning to run toward them from every direction. The two dead men had died without a cry, and so it had taken a moment before the rest of the crowd knew what had happened, but now they did. Most of them had naked scimitars in their hands. "'Quick, on my back,' said Jewel. The king flung himself astride of his old friend, who turned and galloped away. He changed direction twice or thrice as soon as they were out of sight of their enemies, crossed a stream, and shouted, without slackening his pace, "'Whither away, sire, to care Paravel?' "'Hold hard, friend,' said Tyrion. "'Let me off!' He slid off Unicorn's back and faced him. "'Jewel,' said the king, "'we have done a dreadful deed.' "'We were sorely provoked,' said Jewel. "'But to leap on them unawares, without defying them, while they were unarmed, "'ah! We are too murderers, Jewel! I am dishonoured for ever!' Jewel dropped his head. He too was ashamed. And then, said the king, the horse said it was by Aslan's orders. The rat said the same. They all said Aslan is here. How if it were true? But, sire, how could Aslan be commanding such dreadful things? He is not a tame lion, said Tyrion. How should we know what he would do? We, who are murderers... Jewel, I will go back. I will give up my sword and put myself in the hands of these Kalormans and ask that they bring me before Aslan. Let him do justice on me. You will go to your death, then, said Jewel. Do you think I care if Aslan dooms me to death? said the king. That would be nothing, nothing at all. Would it not be better to be dead than to have this horrible fear that Aslan has come and is not like the Aslan we have believed in and longed for? It is as if the sun rose one day and were a black sun. I know, said Jewel, or as if you drank water and it were dry water. You are in the right, sire. This is the end of all things. Let us go and give ourselves up. There is no need for both of us to go. If ever we loved one another, let me go with you now, said the unicorn. If you are dead, and if Aslan is not Aslan, what life is left for me? They turned and walked back together, shedding bitter tears. As soon as they came to the place where the work was going on, the Kalormans raised a cry and came toward them with their weapons in hand. But the king held out his sword with the hilt toward them and said, I who was king of Narnia and am now a dishonored knight give myself up to the justice of Aslan. Bring me before him. And I give myself up too, said Jewel. Then the dark men came round them in a thick crowd, smelling of garlic and onions, their white eyes flashing dreadful in their brown faces. They put a rope halter round Jewel's neck. 
They took the king's sword away and tied his hands behind his back. One of the Kalormans, who had a helmet instead of a turban and seemed to be in command, snatched the gold circlet off Tyrion's head and hastily put it away somewhere among his clothes. They led the two prisoners uphill to a place where there was a big clearing. And this was what the prisoners saw. At the center of the clearing, which was also the highest point of the hill, there was a little hut like a stable with a thatched roof. Its door was shut. On the grass in front of the door there sat an ape. Tyrion and Jewel, who had been expecting to see Aslan and had heard nothing about an ape yet, were very bewildered when they saw it. The ape was, of course, Shift himself but he looked ten times uglier than when he lived by Cauldron Pool, for he was now dressed up. He was wearing a scarlet jacket, which did not fit him very well, having been made for a dwarf. He had jeweled slippers on his hind paws, which would not stay on properly, because, as you know, the hind paws of an ape are really like hands. He wore what seemed to be a paper crown on his head. There was a great pile of nuts beside him, and he kept cracking nuts with his jaws and spitting out the shells, and he also kept on pulling up the scarlet jacket to scratch himself. A great number of talking beasts stood facing him, and nearly every face in that crowd looked miserably worried and bewildered. When they saw who the prisoners were, they all groaned and whimpered. "'Oh, Lord Shift, mouthpiece of Aslan,' said the chief Kalorman. "'We bring you prisoners by our skill and courage, and by the permission of the great god Tash, we have taken alive these two desperate murderers.' "'Give me that man's sword,' said the ape. So they took the king's sword, and handed it with the sword, belt, and all, to the monkey, and he hung it round his own neck, and it made him look sillier than ever. "'We'll see about those two later,' said the ape, spitting out a shell in the direction of the two prisoners. "'I got some other business first. They can wait. Now listen to me, everyone. The first thing I want to say is about nuts. Where's that head squirrel got to?' "'Here, sir,' said a red squirrel, coming forward and making a nervous little bow. "'Oh, you are, are you?' said the ape with a nasty look. "'Now attend to me. I want—I mean, Aslan wants—some more nuts. These you've brought aren't anything like enough. You must bring some more, do you hear? Twice as many. And they've got to be here by sunset tomorrow, and there mustn't be any bad ones or any small ones among them.' A murmur of dismay ran through the other squirrels, and the head squirrel plucked up courage to say, "'Please, would Aslan himself speak to us about it, if we might be allowed to see him?' "'Well, you won't,' said the ape. "'He may be very kind, though it's a lot more than most of you deserve, and come out for a few minutes tonight. Then you can all have a look at him. But he will not have you all crowding round him and pestering him with questions. Anything you want to say to him will be passed on through me, if I think it's worth bothering him about. 
In the meantime, all you squirrels had better go and see about the nuts and make sure they're here by tomorrow evening or my word you'll catch it. The poor squirrels all scampered away as if a dog were after them. This new order was terrible news for them. The nuts they had carefully hoarded for the winter had nearly all been eaten by now, and of the few that were left they had already given the ape far more than they could spare. Then a deep voice, it belonged to a great tusked and shaggy boar, spoke from another part of the crowd. "'But why can't we see Aslan properly and talk to him?' it said. When he used to appear in Narnia in the old days, everyone could talk to him face to face. Don't you believe it, said the ape. And even if it was true, times have changed. Aslan says he's been far too soft with you before, do you see? Well, he isn't going to be soft any more. He's going to lick you into shape this time. He'll teach you to think he's a tame lion. A low moaning and whimpering was heard among the beasts. And after that, a dead silence, which was more miserable still. "'And now there's another thing you've got to learn,' said the ape. "'I hear some of you are saying I'm an ape. Well, I am not. I'm a man. If I look like an ape, that's because I'm so very old, hundreds and hundreds of years old. And it's because I'm so old that I'm so wise. And it's because I'm so wise that I'm the only one Aslan is ever going to speak to. He can't be bothered talking to a lot of stupid animals. He'll tell me what you've got to do, and I'll tell the rest of you, and take my advice, and see you do it in double-quick time, for he doesn't mean to stand any nonsense. There was dead silence, except for the noise of a very young badger crying, and its mother trying to make it keep quiet. And now here's another thing, the ape went on, fitting a fresh nut into its cheek. I hear some of the horses are saying... Let's hurry up and get this job of carting timber over as quickly as we can, and then we'll be free again. Well, you can get that idea out of your heads at once. And not only the horses, either. Everybody who can work is going to be made to work in future. Aslan has it all settled with the King of Kalormen, the Tisrock, as our dark-faced friends the Kalormans call him. All you horses and bulls and donkeys are to be sent down into Kalormen to work for your living, pulling and carrying the way horses and such like do in other countries. And all you digging animals like moles and rabbits and dwarfs are going down to work in the Tisrock's mines, and... No, no, no! howled the beasts. It can't be true! Aslan would never sell us into slavery to the king of Kalorman. None of that! Hold your noise! said the ape with a snarl. Who said anything about slavery? You won't be slaves. You'll be paid. Very good wages, too. That is to say, your pay will be paid into Aslan's treasury, and he will use it all for everybody's good. Then he glanced and almost winked at the chief Kalorman. The Kalorman bowed and replied in the pompous Kalorman way, Most sapient mouthpiece of Aslan, the Tisrock, may he live forever, 
is wholly of one mind with your lordship in this judicious plan. There, you see, said the ape. It's all arranged, and all for your own good. We'll be able, with the money you earn, to make Narnia a country worth living in. There'll be oranges and bananas pouring in, and roads, and big cities, and schools, and offices, and whips, and muzzles, and saddles, and cages, and kennels, and prisons. Oh, everything! But we don't want all those things, said an old bear. We want to be free, and we want to hear Aslan speak himself. Now don't you start arguing, said the ape, for it's a thing I won't stand. I'm a man. You're only a fat, stupid old bear. What do you know about freedom? You think freedom means doing what you like. Well, you're wrong. That isn't true freedom. True freedom means doing what I tell you. Mm -hmm, grunted the bear and scratched its head. It found this sort of thing hard to understand. Please, please, said the high voice of a woolly lamb who was so young that everyone was surprised he dared to speak at all. What is it now? said the ape. Be quick. Please, said the lamb. I can't understand what we have to do with the Kalorvans. We belong to Aslan. They belong to Tash. They have a god called Tash. They say he has four arms and the head of a vulture. They kill men on his altar. I don't believe there's any such person as Tash. But if there was, how could Aslan be friends with him? All the animals cocked their heads sideways, and all their bright eyes flashed toward the ape. They knew it was the best question anyone had asked yet. The ape jumped up and spat at the lamb. Baby, he hissed, silly little bleater. Go home to your mother and drink milk. What do you understand of such things? But the others, listen. Tash is only another name for Aslan. All that old idea of us being right and the Kalormans wrong is silly. We know better now. The Kalormans use different words, but we all mean the same thing. Tash and Aslan are only two different names for you know who. That's why there can never be any quarrel between them. Get that into your heads, you stupid brutes. Tash is Aslan. Aslan is Tash. You know how sad your own dog's face can look sometimes. Think of that, and then think of all the faces of those talking beasts, all those honest, humble, bewildered birds, bears, badgers, rabbits, moles and mice, all far sadder than that. Every tail was down, every whisker drooped. It would have broken your heart with very pity to see their faces. There was only one who did not look at all unhappy. It was a ginger cat, a great big tom in the prime of life, who sat bolt upright with his tail curled round his toes in the very front row of all the beasts. He had been staring hard at the ape, 
and the Kalorman captain all the time and had never once blinked his eyes. "'Excuse me,' said the cat, very politely. "'But this interests me. "'Does your friend from Kalorman say the same?' "'Assuredly,' said the Kalorman. "'The enlightened ape, uh, uh, man, uh, I mean, uh, is in the right. "'Aslan means neither less nor more than Tash.' "'Especially Aslan means no more than Tash,' suggested the cat. "'No more at all,' said the Kalorman, looking the cat straight in the face. "'Is that good enough for you, Ginger?' said the ape. "'Oh, certainly,' said Ginger coolly. "'Thank you very much. I only wanted to be quite clear. I think I'm beginning to understand.' Up till now the king and Jewel had said nothing. They were waiting until the ape should bid them to speak, for they thought it was no use interrupting. But now, as Tyrion looked round on the miserable faces of the Narnians and saw how they would all believe that Aslan and Tash were one and the same, he could bear it no longer. "'Ape!' he cried with a great voice. "'You lie damnably!' "'You lie like a Kalorman! You lie like an ape!' He meant to go on and ask how the terrible god Tash, who fed on the blood of his people, could possibly be the same as the good lion by whose blood all Narnia was saved. If he had been allowed to speak, the rule of the ape might have ended that day. The beasts might have seen the truth and thrown the ape down.' But before he could say another word, two Kalormans struck him in the mouth with all their force, and a third from behind kicked his feet from under him, and as he fell, the ape squealed in rage and terror, "'Take him away! Take him away! Take him where he cannot hear us, nor we him! There, tie him to a tree! I will—I mean, Aslan will—do justice on him later!' Chapter 4 What Happened That Night The king was so dizzy from being knocked down that he hardly knew what was happening until the Kalormans untied his wrists and put his arms straight down by his sides and set him with his back against an ash tree. Then they bound ropes round his ankles and his knees and his waist and his chest and left him there. What worried him most at the moment for it is often little things that are hardest to stand, was that his lip was bleeding where they had hit him, and he couldn't wipe the little trickle of blood away, although it tickled him. From where he was, he could still see the little stable on the top of the hill, and the ape sitting in front of it. He could just hear the ape's voice still going on, and every now and then some answer from the crowd, but he could not make out the words. I wonder what they've done to Jewel thought the king. Presently the crowd of beasts broke up and began going away in different directions. Some passed close to Tyrion. They looked at him as if they were both frightened and sorry to see him tied up, but none of them spoke. Soon they had all gone, and there was silence in the wood. Then hours and hours went past, and Tyrion became first very thirsty and then very hungry, 
and as the afternoon dragged on and turned into evening, he became cold too. His back was very sore. The sun went down, and it began to be twilight. When it was almost dark, Tyrion heard a light pitter-patter of feet and saw some small creatures coming towards him. The three on the left were mice, and there was a rabbit in the middle. On the right were two moles. Both these were carrying little bags on their backs, which gave them a curious look in the dark, so that first he wondered what kind of beasts they were. Then, in a moment, they were all standing up on their hind legs, laying their cool paws on his knees, and giving his knees snuffily animal kisses. They could reach his knees, because Narnian talking beasts of that sort are bigger than the dumb beasts of the same kind in England. "'Lord King, dear Lord King,' said their shrill voices, "'we're so sorry for you. "'We daren't untie you, because Aslan might be angry with us. "'But we've brought you your supper.' "'At once the first mouse climbed nimbly up "'till he was perched on the rope that bound Tyrion's chest "'and was wrinkling his blunt nose in front of Tyrion's face. "'Then the second mouse climbed up "'and hung on just below the first mouse.' The other beasts stood on the ground and began handing things up. "'Drink, sire, and then you'll find you're able to eat,' said the topmost mouse, and Tyrion found that a little wooden cup was being held to his lips. It was only the size of an egg cup, so that he had hardly tasted the wine in it before it was empty. But then the mouse passed it down, and the others refilled it, and it was passed up again, and Tyrion emptied it a second time. In this way they went on till he had quite a good drink, which was all the better for coming in little doses, for that is more thirst-quenching than one long draught. "'Here is cheese, sire,' said the first mouse, "'but not very much, for fear it would make you too thirsty.' And after the cheese they fed him with oat-cakes and fresh butter, and then with some more wine. "'Now hand up the water,' said the first mouse, "'and I'll wash the king's face. There is blood on it.' Then Tyrion felt something like a tiny sponge dabbing his face, and it was most refreshing. "'Little friends,' said Tyrion, "'how can I thank you for all this?' "'You needn't, you needn't,' said the little voices." "'What else could we do? "'We don't want any other king. "'We're your people. "'If it was only the ape and the Kalormans who were against you, "'we would have fought till we were cut into pieces "'before we'd have let them tie you up. "'We would, we would indeed, "'but we can't go against Aslan.' "'Do you think it really is Aslan?' asked the king. "'Oh, yes, yes,' said the rabbit. He came out of the stable last night. We all saw him. What was he like? said the king. Like a terrible great lion, to be sure, said one of the mice. And you think it is really Aslan who is killing the wood nymphs and making you all slaves to the king of Kalorman? Ah, oh, that's bad, isn't it? said the second mouse. It would have been better if we died before all this began. "'But there's no doubt about it. "'Everyone says it is Aslan's orders, and we've seen him. "'We didn't think Aslan would be like that. "'Why, we we wanted him to come back to Narnia. 
He seems to have come back very angry this time, said the first mouse. We must all have done something dreadfully wrong without knowing it. He must be punishing us for something. But I do think he might be told what it was. I suppose what we're doing now may be wrong, said the rabbit. I don't care if it is, said one of the moles. I do it again. But the others said, Oh, hush! And do be careful. And then they all said, We're sorry, dear king, but we must go back now. It would never do for us to be caught here. Leave me at once, dear beasts, said Tyrion. I would not for all Narnia bring any of you into danger. Good night, good night, said the beasts, rubbing their noses against his knees. We will come back if we can. Then they all pattered away, and the wood seemed darker and colder and lonelier than it had been before they came. The stars came out, and time went slowly on. Imagine how slowly, while the last king of Narnia stood stiff and sore and upright against the tree in his bonds. But at last something happened. Far away there appeared a red light. Then it disappeared for a moment and came back again, bigger and stronger. Then he could see dark shapes going to and fro on this side of the light and carrying bundles and throwing them down. He knew now what he was looking at. It was a bonfire, newly lit, and people were throwing bundles of brushwood onto it. Presently it blazed up, and Tyrion could see that it was on the very top of the hill. He could see quite clearly the stable behind it, all lit up in the red glow, and a great crowd of beasts and men between the fire and himself. A small figure, hunched up beside the fire, must be the ape. It was saying something to the crowd, but he could not hear what. Then it went and bowed three times to the ground in front of the door of the stable. Then he got up and opened the door. And something on four legs, something that walked rather stiffly, came out of the stable and stood facing the crowd. A great wailing or howling went up so loud that Tyrion could hear some of the words. Aslan! 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 cried the beasts. Speak to us, comfort us, be angry with us no more. From where Tyrion was, he could not make out very clearly what the thing was, but he could see that it was yellow and hairy. He had never seen the great lion. He had never seen a common lion. He couldn't be sure that what he saw was not the real Aslan. He had not expected Aslan to look like that stiff thing which stood and said nothing, but how could one be sure? For a moment horrible thoughts went through his mind. Then he remembered the nonsense about Tash and Aslan being the same, and knew that the whole thing must be a cheat. The ape put his head close up to the yellow thing's head, as if he were listening to something it was whispering to him. 
Then he turned and spoke to the crowd, and the crowd wailed again. Then the yellow thing turned clumsily round and walked, you might almost say, waddled, back into the stable and the ape shut the door behind it. After that, the fire must have been put out for the light vanished quite suddenly and Tyrion was once more alone with the cold and the darkness. He thought of other kings who had lived and died in Narnia in old times and it seemed to him that none of them had ever been so unlucky as himself. He thought of his great-grandfather's great-grandfather, King Rillian, who had been stolen away by a witch when he was only a young prince and kept hidden for years in the dark caves beneath the land of the northern giants. But then it had all come right in the end, for two mysterious children had suddenly appeared from the land beyond the world's end and had rescued him— so that he came home to Narnia and had a long and prosperous reign. "'It's not like that with me,' said Tyrion to himself. Then he went further back and thought about Rillian's father, Caspian the Seafarer, whose wicked uncle, King Maras, had tried to murder him, and how Caspian fled away into the woods and lived among the dwarfs.' But that story, too, had all come right in the end, for Caspian also had been helped by children, only there were four of them that time, who came from somewhere beyond the world and fought a great battle and set him on his father's throne. But it was all long ago, said Tyrion to himself. That sort of thing doesn't happen now. And then he remembered for he had always been good at history when he was a boy, how those same four children who had helped Caspian had been in Narnia over a thousand years before, and it was then that they had done the most remarkable thing of all, for then they had defeated the terrible white witch and ended the hundred years of winter, and after that they had reigned, all four of them together at Caer Paravel, till they were no longer children, but great kings and lovely queens, and their reign had been the golden age of Narnia. And Aslan had come into that story a lot. He had come into all the other stories, too, as Tyrion now remembered. Aslan! And the children from another world, thought Tyrion. They have always come in when things were at their worst. Oh, if only they could now. And he called out, Aslan! 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 Come and help us now! But the darkness and the cold and the quietness went on just the same. Let me be killed, cried the king. I ask nothing for myself, but come and save all Narnia. And still there was no change in the night or the wood. But there began to be a kind of change inside Tyrion. Without knowing why, he began to feel a faint hope, and he felt somehow stronger. Oh, "'Aslan, Aslan,' he whispered, "'if you will not come yourself, "'at least send me the helpers from beyond the world, 
or let me call them, let my voice carry beyond the world. Then, hardly knowing that he was doing it, he suddenly cried out in a great voice, Children! Children! Friends of Narnia! Quick! Come to me! Across the worlds I call you! I, Tyrion, King of Narnia, Lord of Care Paravel, and Emperor of the Lone Islands! And immediately he was plunged into a dream, if it was a dream, more vivid than any he had had in his life. He seemed to be standing in a lighted room where seven people sat round a table. It looked as if they had just finished their meal. Two of these people were very old, an old man with a white beard and an old woman with wise, merry, twinkling eyes. He who sat at the right hand of the old man was hardly full-grown, certainly younger than Tyrion himself, but his face had already the look of a king and a warrior. And you could almost say the same of the other youth who sat at the right hand of the old woman. Facing Tyrion across the table sat a fair-haired girl younger than either of these, and on either side of her a boy and a girl who were younger still. They were all dressed in what seemed to Tyrion the oddest kind of clothes. But he had no time to think about details like that, for instantly the youngest boy and both the girls started to their feet, and one of them gave a little scream. The old woman started and drew in her breath sharply. The old man must have made some sudden movement too, for the wine-glass which stood at his right hand was swept off the table. Tyrion could hear the tinkling noise as it broke on the floor. Then Tyrion realized that these people could see him. They were staring at him as if they saw a ghost. But he noticed that the king-like one who sat at the old man's right never moved, though he turned pale, except that he clenched his hand very tight. Then he said, Speak, if you're not a phantom or a dream. You have a Narnian look about you, and we are the seven friends of Narnia. Tyrion was longing to speak, and he tried to cry out aloud that he was Tyrion of Narnia in great need of help, but he found, as I have sometimes found in dreams too, that his voice made no noise at all. The one who had already spoken to him rose to his feet. Shadow, or spirit, or whatever you are, he said, fixing his eyes full upon Tyrion. If you are from Narnia, I charge you in the name of Aslan, speak to me. I am Peter the High King. The room began to swim before Tyrion's eyes. He heard the voices of those seven people all speaking at once and all getting fainter every second, and they were saying things like, Look, it's fading, it's melting away, it's vanishing. Next moment he was wide awake, still tied to the tree, colder and stiffer than ever. The wood was full of the pale, dreary light that comes before sunrise, and he was soaking wet with dew. It was nearly morning.
That waking was about the worst moment he had ever had in his life. Chapter 5 How Help Came to the King But his misery did not last long. Almost at once there came a bump, and then a second bump, and two children were standing before him. The wood in front of him had been quite empty a second before, and he knew they had not come from behind his tree, for he would have heard them. They had, in fact, simply appeared from nowhere. He saw at a glance that they were wearing the same queer, dingy sort of clothes as the people in his dream, and he saw at a second glance that they were the youngest boy and girl out of that party of seven. "'Gosh!' said the boy. "'That took one's breath away. I thought—' "'Hurry up and get him untied,' said the girl. "'We can talk afterwards.' Then she added, turning to Tyrion, "'I'm sorry we've been so long. We came the moment we could.' While she was speaking, the boy produced a knife from his pocket and was quickly cutting the king's bonds. Too quickly, in fact, for the king was so stiff and numb that when the last cord was cut, he fell forward on his hands and knees. He couldn't get up again till he had brought some life back into his legs by a good rubbing. "'I say,' said the girl, "'it was you, wasn't it, who appeared to us that night when we were all at supper nearly a week ago?' "'A week?' "'Fair maid,' said Tyrion, "'my dream led me into your world scarce ten minutes since.' "'It's the usual muddle about times, Pole,' said the boy. "'I remember now,' said Tyrion, "'that too comes in all the old tales. "'The time of your strange land is so different from ours. "'But if we speak of time, "'tis time to be gone from here, "'for my enemies are close at hand. "'Will you come with me?' "'Of course,' said the girl. "'It's you. We've come to help.' Tyrion got to his feet and led them rapidly downhill, southward and away from the stable. He knew where he meant to go, but his first aim was to get to rocky places where they would leave no trail, and his second to cross some water so that they would leave no scent. This took them about an hour, scrambling and wading, and while that was going on nobody had any breath to talk, but even so Tyrion kept on stealing glances at his companions. The wonder of walking beside the creatures from another world made him feel a little dizzy, but it also made all the old stories seem far more real than they had ever seen before. Anything might happen now. Now, said Tyrion, as they came to the head of a little valley which ran down before them among young birch-trees. We're out of danger of those villains for a space and may walk more easily. The sun had risen, dewdrops were twinkling on every branch, and birds were singing. What about some grub? I mean, uh, for you, sir, we too have had our breakfast, said the boy. Tyrion wondered very much what he meant by grub, but when the boy opened a bulgy satchel which he was carrying and pulled out a rather greasy and squashy packet, he understood. He was ravenously hungry, though he hadn't thought about it till that moment. There were two hard-boiled egg sandwiches, and two cheese sandwiches, and two with some kind of paste in them. If he hadn't been so hungry, he wouldn't have thought much of the paste, for that is a sort of food nobody eats in Narnia— 
By the time he had eaten all six sandwiches, they had come to the bottom of the valley, and there they found a mossy cliff with a little fountain bubbling out of it. All three stopped and drank, and splashed their hot faces. And now, said the girl, as she tossed her wet hair back from her forehead, aren't you going to tell us who you are, and why you were tied up, and what it's all about? With a good will, damsel, said Tyrion, but we must keep on the march. So while they went on walking, he told them who he was and all the things that had happened to him. And now, he said at the end, I'm going to a certain tower, one of three that were built in my grandsire's time, to guard lantern waste against certain perilous outlaws who dwelled there in his day. By Aslan's good will, I was not robbed of my keys. In that tower we shall find stores of weapons and mail and some victuals also, though no better than dry biscuit. There also we can lie safe while we make our plans. And now, prithee, tell me who you two are and all your story. I'm Eustace Scrub, and this is Jill Pole, said the boy, and we were here once before, ages and ages ago, more than a year ago by our time, and there was a chap called Prince Rillian, and they were keeping this chap underground, and Puddleglum put his foot in. Ha! cried Tyrion. Are you then that Eustace and that Jill who rescued King Rillian from his long enchantment? Yes, that's us, said Jill. So he's King Rillian now, is he? Oh, of course he would be. I forgot. Nay, said Tyrion. I am the seventh in descent from him. He has been dead over two hundred years. Jill made a face. Ah, oh, she said, that's the horrid part about coming back to Narnia. But Eustace went on. Well, now you know who we are, sire, he said, and it was like this. The professor and Aunt Polly had got all us friends of Narnia together. I know not these names, Eustace said Tyrion. They're the two who came into Narnia at the very beginning, the day all the animals learned to talk. By the lion's mane, cried Tyrion. Those two, the Lord Diggory and the Lady Polly, from the dawn of the world, and still alive in your place? The wonder and glory of it! But tell me, tell me! "'She isn't really our aunt, you know,' said Eustace. "'She's Miss Plummer, but we call her Aunt Polly. "'Well, those two got us all together, "'partly just for fun, so that we could all have a good jaw about Narnia, "'for, of course, there's no one else we can ever talk to about things like that, "'but partly because the Professor had a feeling "'that we were somehow wanted over here. "'Well, then you came in like a ghost, or goodness knows what, "'and nearly frightened the lives out of us, and vanished without saying a word. After that, we knew for certain there was something up. The next question was how to get here. You can't go just by wanting to. So we talked and talked, and at last the professor said the only way would be by the magic rings. It was by those rings that he and Aunt Polly got here long, long ago, when they were only kids, years before we younger ones were born. But the rings had all been buried in the garden of a house. I in London. That's our big town, sire. And the house had been sold. So the problem was how to get at them. You'll never guess what we did in the end. Peter and Edmund 
that's the high king, Peter, the one who spoke to you, went up to London to get into the garden from the back early in the morning before people were up. They were dressed like workmen, so that if anyone did see them, it would look as if they'd come to do something about the drains. I wish I'd been with them. It must have been glorious fun. And they must have succeeded, for next day Peter sent us a wire. Uh, that's a, a sort of message, sire. I I'll explain about it some other time. To say he'd got the rings. And the day after that was the day Pole and I had to go back to school. We're the only two who are still at school, and we're at the same one. So, Peter and Edmund were to meet us at a place on the way down to school and hand over the rings. It had to be us two who were to go to Narnia, you see, because the older ones couldn't come again. So, we got into the train. Uh, th that's a kind of thing people travel in in our world. A, a lot of wagons chained together. And the professor and Aunt Polly and Lucy came with us. We wanted to keep together as long as we could. Well, there we were in the train, and we were just getting to the station where the others were to meet us, and I was looking out of the window to see if I could see them, when suddenly there came a most frightful jerk and a noise, and there we were in Narnia, and there was Your Majesty tied up to the tree. So you never used the rings, said Tyrion. No, said Eustace, never even saw them. Aslan did it all for us, in his own way, without any rings. But the High King Peter has them, said Tyrion. Yes, said Jill, but we don't think he can use them. When the two other Pevenses, King Edmund and Queen Lucy, were last here, Aslan said they would never come to Narnia again, and he said something of the same sort to the High King only longer ago. You may be sure he'll come like a shot if he's allowed. Gosh, said Eustace, it's getting hot in this sun. Are we nearly there, sire? Look, said Tyrion, and pointed. Not many yards away, grey battlements rose above the treetops, and after a minute's more walking they came out in an open grassy space. A stream ran across it, and on the far side of the stream stood a squat, square tower, with very few and narrow windows, and one heavy-looking door in the wall that faced them. Tyrion looked sharply this way and that to make sure that no enemies were in sight. Then he walked up to the tower, and stood still for a moment, fishing up his bunch of keys, which he wore inside his hunting dress on a narrow silver chain that went round his neck. It was a nice bunch of keys that he brought out, for two were golden, and many were richly ornamented. You could see at once that they were keys made for opening solemn and secret rooms in palaces, or chests and caskets of sweet-smelling wood that contained royal treasures. But the key which he now put into the lock of the door was big and plain, and more rudely made. The lock was stiff, and for a moment Tyrion began to be afraid that he would not be able to turn it. But at last he did, and the door swung open with a sullen creak. "'Welcome, friends,' said Tyrion. "'I fear this is the best palace that the King of Narnia can now offer to his guests.' Tyrion was pleased to see that the two strangers had been well brought up. They both said not to mention it, and that they were sure it would be very nice. As a matter of fact, it was not particularly nice. It was rather dark, and smelled very damp. 
There was only one room in it, and this room went right up to the stone roof. A wooden staircase in one corner led up to a trap door by which you could get out onto the battlements. There were a few rude bunks to sleep in, and a great many lockers and bundles. There was also a hearth which looked as if nobody had lit a fire in it for a great many years. We'd better go out and gather some firewood first thing, hadn't we? said Jill. Not yet, comrade, said Tyrion. He was determined that they should not be caught unarmed, and began searching the lockers, thankfully remembering that he had always been careful to have these garrison towers inspected once a year to make sure that they were stocked with all things needful. The bowstrings were there in their coverings of oiled silk, the swords and spears were greased against rust, and the armor was kept bright in its wrappings. But there was something even better. Look, said Tyrion, as he drew out a long male shirt of a curious pattern and flashed it before the children's eyes. That's funny looking male, sire, said Eustace. Aye, lad, said Tyrion. No Narnian dwarf smithed that. Tis male of Kalorman, outlandish gear. I have ever kept a few suits of it in readiness, for I never knew when I or my friends might have reason to walk unseen in the Tisrock's land. And look on this stone bottle. In this there is a juice which, when we have rubbed it on our hands and faces, will make us brown as Kalormans. Oh, hurrah! said Jill. Disguise! I love disguises! Tyrion showed them how to pour out a little of the juice into the palms of their hands, and then rub it well over their faces and necks right down to the shoulders, and then on their hands right up to the elbows. He did the same himself. After this has hardened on us, he said, we may wash in water, and it will not change. Nothing but oil and ashes will make us white Narnians again. And now, sweet Jill, let us go see how this male shirt becomes you. "'Tis something too long, yet not so much as I feared. "'Doubtless it belonged to a page in the train of one of their Takans. "'After the mail shirts, they put on Kalormin helmets, "'which are little round ones, fitting tight to the head "'and having a spike on top. "'Then Tyrion took long rolls of some white stuff out of the locker "'and wound them over the helmets till they became turbans, "'but the little steel spike still stuck up in the middle. "'He and Eustace took curved Kalorman swords and little round shields. "'There was no sword light enough for Jill, "'but he gave her a long straight hunting knife, "'which might do for a sword at a pinch. "'Hast any skill with the bow, maiden?' said Tyrion. "'Nothing worth talking of,' said Jill, blushing. "'Scrub's not bad.' "'Don't you believe her, sire,' said Eustace. "'We've both been practising archery ever since we got back from Narnia last time, "'and she's about as good as me now. "'Not that either of us is much.' "'Then Tyrion gave Jill a bow and a quiver full of arrows. "'The next business was to light a fire.' for inside that tower it still felt more like a cave than like anything indoors, and set one shivering. But they got warm gathering the wood, the sun was now at its highest, and when once the blaze was roaring up the chimney the place began to look cheerful. 
Dinner was, however, a dull meal, for the best they could do was to pound up some of the hard biscuit which they found in a locker and pour it into boiling water with salt so as to make a kind of porridge. And, of course, there was nothing to drink but water. "'I wish we'd brought a packet of tea,' said Jill. "'Or a tin of cocoa,' said Eustace. "'A firkin or so of good wine in each of these towers would not have been amiss,' said Tyrion. Chapter 6 A Good Night's Work About four hours later, Tyrion flung himself into one of the bunks to snatch a little sleep. The two children were already snoring. He had made them go to bed before he did, because they would have to be up most of the night, and he knew that at their age they couldn't do without sleep. Also, he had tired them out. First he had given Jill some practice in archery, and found that, though not up to Narnian standards, she was really not too bad. Indeed, she had succeeded in shooting a rabbit. Not a talking rabbit, of course. There are lots of the ordinary kind about in western Narnia. And it was already skinned, cleaned, and hanging up. He had found that both the children knew all about this chilly and smelly job— they had learned that kind of thing on their great journey through giant land in the days of Prince Rillian. Then he had tried to teach Eustace how to use his sword and shield. Eustace had learned quite a lot about sword fighting on his earlier adventures, but that had been all with a straight Narnian sword. He had never handled a curved Kalorman scimitar, and that made it hard, for many of the strokes are quite different, and some of the habits he had learned with the long sword had now to be unlearned again. But Tyrion found that he had a good eye and was very quick on his feet. He was surprised at the strength of both children. In fact, they both seemed to be already much stronger and bigger and more grown-up than they had been when he first met them a few hours ago. It is one of the effects which Narnian air often has on visitors from our world. All three of them agreed that the very first thing they must do was to go back to Stable Hill and try to rescue Jewel the Unicorn. After that, if they succeeded, they would try to get away eastward and meet the little army which Runewit the Centaur would be bringing from Care Paravel. An experienced warrior and huntsman like Tyrion can always wake up at the time he wants. So he gave himself till nine o'clock that night, and then put all worries out of his head and fell asleep at once. It seemed only a moment later when he woke, but he knew by the light and the very feel of things that he had timed his sleep exactly. He got up, put on his helmet and turban, he had slept in his mail shirt, and then shook the other two till they woke up. They looked, to tell the truth, very grey and dismal as they climbed out of their bunks, and there was a good deal of yawning. Now, said Tyrion, we go due north from here, by good fortune tis a starry night, and it will be much shorter than our journey this morning, for then we went round about, but now we shall go straight. If we are challenged, then do you two hold your peace, and I will do my best to talk like a cursed, cruel, proud lord of Kalorman. If I draw my sword, then thou, Eustace, must do likewise, and let Jill leap behind us and stand with an arrow on the string. But if I cry, Home! 
Then fly for the tower, both of you, and let none try to fight on, not even one stroke, after I have given the retreat. Such false valor has spoiled many notable plans in the wars. And now, friends, in the name of Aslan, let us go forward. Out they went into the cold night. All the great northern stars were burning above the treetops. The north star of that world is called the Spearhead. It is brighter than our pole star. For a time they could go straight toward the Spearhead, but presently they came to a dense thicket, so they had to go out of their course to get round it. And after that, for they were still overshadowed by branches, it was hard to pick up their bearings. It was Jill who set them right again. She had been an excellent guide in England, and of course she knew her Narnian stars perfectly, having travelled so much in the wild northern lands, and could work out the direction from other stars even when the spearhead was hidden. As soon as Tyrion saw that she was the best pathfinder of the three of them, he put her in front and then he was astonished to find how silently and almost invisibly she glided on before them. "'By the mane,' he whispered to Eustace, "'this girl is a wondrous wood-maid. "'If she had Dryad's blood in her, she could scarce do it better.' "'She's so small, that's what helps,' whispered Eustace. "'But Jill, from in front, said, "'Shh, less noise!' All round them the wood was very quiet. Indeed, it was far too quiet. On an ordinary Narnian night there ought to have been noises, an occasional cheery, "'Good night!' from a hedgehog, the cry of an owl overhead, perhaps a flute in the distance to tell of fawns dancing, or some throbbing, hammering noises from dwarfs underground. All that was silenced. Gloom! and fear reigned over Narnia. After a time they began to go steeply uphill, and the trees grew further apart. Tyrion could dimly make out the well-known hilltop and the stable. Jill was now going with more and more caution. She kept on making signs to the others with her hand to do the same. Then she stopped dead still, and Tyrion saw her gradually sink down into the grass and disappear without a sound. A moment later she rose again, put her mouth close to Tyrion's ear, and said in the lowest possible whisper, Get down, thee better. She said thee for see, not because she had a lisp, but because she knew that the hissing letter S is the part of a whisper most likely to be overheard. Tyrion at once lay down, almost as silently as Jill, but not quite, for he was heavier and older. And once they were down, he saw how from that position you could see the edge of the hill sharp against the star-strewn sky. Two black shapes rose against it. One was the stable, and the other, a few feet in front of it, was a Kalorman sentry. He was keeping very ill watch, not walking or even standing, but sitting with his spear over his shoulder and his chin on his chest. "'Well done,' said Tyrion to Jill. She had shown him exactly what he needed to know. They got up, and now Tyrion took the lead.' 
Very slowly, hardly daring to breathe, they made their way up to a little clump of trees which was not more than forty feet away from the sentinel. Wait here till I come again, he whispered to the other two. If I miscarry, fly. Then he sauntered out boldly in full view of the enemy. The man started when he saw him and was just going to jump to his feet. He was afraid Tyrion might be one of his own officers and that he would get into trouble for sitting down. But before he could get up, Tyrion had dropped on one knee beside him, saying, Art thou a warrior of the Tisrocks? May he live forever. It cheers my heart to meet thee among all these beasts and devils of Narnians. Give me thy hand, friend. Before he well knew what was happening, the Kalorman sentry found his right hand seized in a mighty grip. Next instant, someone was kneeling on his legs, and a dagger was pressed against his neck. One noise, and thou art dead, said Tyrion in his ear. Tell me where the unicorn is, and thou shalt live. But, uh, behind the stable, oh, my master, stammered the unfortunate man. Good. Rise up and lead me to him. As the man got up, the point of the dagger never left his neck. It only travelled round, cold and rather ticklish, as Tyrion got behind him and settled it at a convenient place under his ear. Tremblingly, he went round to the back of the stable. Though it was dark, Tyrion could see the white shape of Jewel at once. "'Hush,' he said. "'No, do not nay. Yes, Jewel, it is I. How have they tied thee?' "'Hobbled by all four legs and tied with a bridle to a ring in the stable wall,' came Jewel's voice. "'Stand here, sentry, with your back to the wall. So. "'Now, Jewel, set the point of your horn against this Kalorman's breast.' "'With a good will, sire,' said Jewel. "'If he moves, rive him to the heart.' Then in a few seconds Tyrion cut the ropes. With the remains of them he bound the sentry hand and foot. Finally he made him open his mouth, stuffed it full of grass, and tied him up from scalp to chin so that he could make no noise, lowered the man into a sitting position, and set him against the wall. "'I have done thee some discourtesy, soldier,' said Tyrion. "'But such was my need. If we meet again, I may happen to do thee a better turn. Now, Jewel.' Let us go softly. He put his left arm round the beast's neck and bent and kissed his nose, and both had great joy. Then he went back as quietly as possible to the place where he had left the children. It was darker in there under the trees, and he nearly ran into Eustace before he saw him. All's well, whispered Tyrion. A good night's work. Now for home. They turned, and had gone a few paces, when Eustace said, "'Where are you, Pole?' There was no answer. "'Is Jill on the other side of you, sire?' he asked. "'What?' said Tyrion. "'Is she not on the other side of you?' It was a terrible moment. They dared not shout, but they whispered her name in the loudest whispers they could manage. There was no reply. "'Did she go from you while I was away?' asked Tyrion. "'I didn't see or hear her go,' said Eustace. "'But she could have gone without my knowing. "'She can be as quiet as a cat. "'You've seen it for yourself.' "'At that moment a far-off drumbeat was heard. "'Jewel moved his ears forward. 
Dwarfs, he said. And treacherous dwarfs, enemies as likely as not, muttered Tyrion. And here comes something on hoofs, much nearer, said Jule. The two humans and the unicorns stood dead still. There were now so many different things to worry about that they didn't know what to do. The noise of hoofs came steadily nearer, and then, quite close to them, a voice whispered, Hello, are you all there? Thank heaven, it was Jill's. Where the devil have you been to? said Eustace in a furious whisper, for he had been very frightened. In the stable, gasped Jill, but it was the sort of gasp you give when you're struggling with suppressed laughter. Oh, growled Eustace, you think it's funny, do you? Well, all I can say is, have you got jewels, sire? asked Jill. Yes, here he is. What is that beast with you? That's him, said Jill. But let's be off home before anyone wakes up. And again there came little explosions of laughter. The others obeyed at once, for they had already lingered long enough in that dangerous place, and the dwarf drums seemed to have come a little nearer. It was only after they had been walking southward for several minutes that Eustace said, Got him? What do you mean? The false Aslan, said Jill. What? said Tyrion. Where have you been? What have you done? Well, sire, said Jill. As soon as I saw that you'd got the sentry out of the way, I thought hadn't I better have a look inside the stable and see what really is there. So I crawled along. It was as easy as anything to draw the bolt. Of course, it was pitch black inside and smelled like any other stable. Then I struck a light and... Would you believe it? There was nothing at all there but this old donkey with a bundle of lion skin tied onto his back. So I drew my knife and told him he'd have to come along with me. As a matter of fact, I needn't have threatened him with the knife at all. He was very fed up with that stable and quite ready to come. Weren't you, puzzle dear? Great Scott, said Eustace. Well, I'm chiggered. I was... "'Jolly angry with you a moment ago, and I still think it was mean of you to sneak off without the rest of us, but I must admit—well, I mean to say—well, it was a perfectly gorgeous thing to do. If she was a boy, she'd have to be knighted, wouldn't she, sire?' "'If she was a boy,' said Tyrion, "'she'd be whipped for disobeying orders.' And in the dark no one could see whether he said this with a frown or a smile. Next minute— there was a sound of rasping metal. "'What are you doing, sire?' asked Jewel sharply. "'Drawing my sword to smite off the head of that accursed ass,' said Tyrion in a terrible voice. "'Stand clear, girl.' "'Oh, don't! Please don't!' said Jill. "'Really, you mustn't! It wasn't his fault! It was all the ape! He didn't know any better, and he's very sorry. He's a nice donkey. His name's Puzzle, and I've got my arms round his neck. Jill, said Tyrion, you are the bravest and most woodwise of all my subjects, but also the most malapert and disobedient. Well, let the ass live. What have you to say for yourself, ass? Me, sire, came the donkey's voice. I'm sure I, I'm very sorry if I've done wrong. The ape said Aslan wanted me to dress up like that, and, 
and I thought he'd know. I'm not clever like him. I only did what I was told. It wasn't any fun for me living in that stable. I don't even know what's been going on outside. He never let me out, except for a minute or two at night. Some days they forgot to give me any water, too. Sire, said Jewel, those dwarfs are coming nearer and nearer. Do we want to meet them? Tyrion thought for a moment, and then suddenly gave a great laugh out loud. Then he spoke, not this time in a whisper. By the lion, he said, I'm growing slow-witted. Meet them? Certainly we will meet them. We will meet anyone now. We have this ass to show them. Let them see the thing they have feared and bowed to. We can show them the truth of the ape's vile plot. His secret's out. The tide's turned. Tomorrow we shall hang that ape on the highest tree in Narnia. No more whispering and skulking and disguises. Where are these honest dwarfs? We have good news for them. When you've been whispering for hours, the mere sound of anyone talking out loud has a wonderfully stirring effect. The whole party began talking and laughing. Even Puzzle lifted up his head and gave a grand Haw-yee-haw-yee-hee! A thing the ape hadn't allowed him to do for days. Then they set off in the direction of the drumming. It grew steadily louder, and soon they could see torchlight as well. They came out on one of those rough roads, we should hardly call them roads at all in England, which ran through Lantern Waste. And there, marching sturdily along, were about thirty dwarfs, all with their little spades and mattocks over their shoulders. Two armed Kalormans led the column, and two more brought up the rear. "'Stay!' thundered Tyrion as he stepped out on the road. "'Stay, soldiers! Whither do you lead these Narnian dwarfs, and by whose orders?' Chapter 7 Mainly About Dwarfs The two Kalorman soldiers at the head of the column, seeing what they took for a Takan or great lord with two armed pages, came to a halt and raised their spears in salute. "'Oh, my master,' said one of them, we lead these mannequins to Kalorman to work in the mines of the Tisrock. May he live forever. By the great god Tash, they're very obedient, said Tyrion. Then suddenly he turned to the dwarfs themselves. About one in six of them carried a torch, and by that flickering light he could see their bearded faces all looking at him with grim and dogged expressions. Has the Tisrock fought a great battle, dwarfs, and conquered your land? he asked, that thus you go patiently to die in the salt pits of Pugrahan? The two soldiers glared at him in surprise, but the dwarfs all answered, Aslan's orders, Aslan's orders, he sold us, what can we do against him? Tisrock indeed, added one, and spat, I'd like to see him try it. Silence, dogs, said the chief soldier. Look, said Tyrion, pulling Puzzle forward into the light. It has all been a lie. Aslan has not come to Narnia at all. You've been cheated by the ape. This is the thing he brought out of the stable to show you. Look at it. What the dwarfs saw, now that they could see it close, was certainly enough to make them wonder how they had ever been taken in. 
The lion skin had got pretty untidy already during Puzzle's imprisonment in the stable, and it had been knocked crooked during his journey through the dark wood. Most of it was in a big lump on one shoulder. The head, besides being pushed sideways, had somehow got very far back, so that anyone could see now his silly, gentle, donkeyish face gazing out of it. Some grass stuck out of one corner of his mouth, for he'd been doing a little quiet nibbling as they brought him along, and he was muttering, "It wasn't my fault. I'm not clever. I never said I was." For one second. All the dwarfs were staring at Puzzle with wide-open mouths, and then one of the soldiers said sharply, "Are you mad, my masters? What are you doing to the slaves?" And the other said, "And who are you?" Neither of their spears were at the salute now. Both were down and ready for action. "Give the password," said the chief soldier. "This is my password." Said the king as he drew his sword, "The light is dawning, the lie broken. Now guard the miscreant, for I am Tyrion of Narnia." He flew upon the chief soldier like lightning. Eustace, who had drawn his sword when he saw the king draw his, rushed at the other one. His face was deadly pale, but I wouldn't blame him for that. And he had the luck that beginners sometimes do have. He forgot all that Tyrion had tried to teach him that afternoon. Slashed wildly, indeed, I'm not sure his eyes weren't shut, and suddenly found, to his own great surprise, that the Kalorman lay dead at his feet. And though that was a great relief, it was at the moment rather frightening. The king's fight lasted a second or two longer. Then he too had killed his man and shouted to Eustace, "Where are the other two?" But the dwarfs had settled the two remaining Kalormans. There was no enemy left. Well struck, Eustace! cried Tyrion, clapping him on the back. Now, dwarfs, you are free. Tomorrow, I will lead you to free all Narnia. Three cheers for Aslan! But the result which followed was simply wretched. There was a feeble attempt from a few dwarfs, about five, which died away all at once. From several others, there were sulky growls. Many said nothing at all. "Don't they understand?" said Jill impatiently. "What's wrong with all you dwarfs? Don't you hear what the king says? It's all over. The ape isn't going to rule Narnia any longer. Everyone can go back to ordinary life." You can have fun again, aren't you glad? After a pause of nearly a minute, a not very nice-looking dwarf with hair and beard as black as soot said, "And who might you be, Missy?" "I'm Jill," she said, "the same Jill who rescued King Rillian from the enchantment, and this is Eustace who did it too. And we've come back from another world after hundreds of years. Aslan sent us." The dwarfs all looked at one another with grins, sneering grins, not merry ones. Well," said the black dwarf, whose name was Griffel. "I don't know how all you chaps feel, but I feel I've heard as much about Aslan as I want to for the rest of my life." "That's right, that's right," growled the other dwarfs. "It's all a plant, all a blooming plant." "What do you mean?" said Tyrion. He had not been pale when he was fighting, but he was pale now. He had thought this was going to be a beautiful moment, but it was turning out more like a bad dream.
"'You must think we're blooming soft in the head, that you must,' said Griffel. "'We've been taken in once, and now you expect us to be taken in again the next minute. "'We've no more use for stories about Aslancy. "'Look at him, an old moat with long ears.' "'By heavens, you make me mad,' said Tyrion. "'Which of us said that was Aslan? "'This is the ape's imitation of the real Aslan. "'Can't you understand?' "'And you've got a better imitation, I suppose,' said Griffel. "'No, thanks. "'We've been fooled once, and we're not going to be fooled again.' "'I have not,' said Tyrion angrily. "'I serve the real Aslan. "'Where's he? "'Who's he? "'Show him to us,' said several dwarfs. "'Do you think I keep him in my wallet, fools?' said Tyrion. "'Who am I that I could make Aslan appear at my bidding? "'He's not a tame lion.' "'The moment those words were out of his mouth, "'he realized that he had made a false move. "'The dwarfs at once began repeating, "'Not a tame lion, not a tame lion,' in a jeering sing-song. "'That's what the other lot kept on telling us,' said one. "'Do you mean you don't believe in the real Aslan?' said Jill. "'But I've seen him, and he has sent us to here out of a different world.' "'Ah!' said Griffel, with a broad smile. "'So you say. "'They've taught you your stuff all right, say in your lessons, ain't you?' "'Churl,' said Tyrion, "'will you give a lady the lie to her very face?' "'You keep a civil tongue in your head, mister.' "'replied the dwarf. "'I don't think we want any more kings, "'if you are Tyrion, which you don't look like him, "'no more than we want any Aslans. "'We're going to look after ourselves from now on "'and touch our caps to nobody, see?' "'That's right,' said the other dwarfs. "'We're on our own now. "'No more Aslan, no more kings, "'no more silly stories about other worlds. "'The dwarfs are for the dwarfs.' and they began to fall into their places and to get ready for marching back to wherever they had come from. "'Little beasts,' said Eustace, "'aren't you even going to say thank you for being saved from the salt mines?' "'Oh, we know all about that,' said Griffel over his shoulder. "'You wanted to make use of us. That's why you rescued us. You're playing some game of your own. Come on, you chaps!' And the dwarfs struck up the queer little marching song which goes with the drumbeat, and off they tramped into the darkness. Tyrion and his friends stared after them. Then he said the single word, Come, and they continued their journey. They were a silent party. Puzzle felt himself to be still in disgrace, and also he didn't really quite understand what had happened. Jill, besides being disgusted with the dwarfs, was very impressed with Eustace's victory over the Kalorman and felt almost shy. As for Eustace, his heart was still beating rather quickly. Tyrion and Jule walked sadly together in the rear. The king had his arm on the unicorn's shoulder, and sometimes the unicorn nuzzled the king's cheek with his soft nose. They did not try to comfort one another with words. It wasn't very easy to think of anything to say that would be comforting. Tyrion had never dreamed that one of the results of the apes setting up a false Aslan would be to stop people from believing in the real one. He had felt quite sure that the dwarfs would rally to his side the moment he showed them how they had been deceived. 
and the next night he would have led them to Stable Hill and shown Puzzle to all the creatures, and everyone would have turned against the ape, and, perhaps after a scuffle with the Kalormans, the whole thing would have been over. But now it seemed he could count on nothing. How many other Narnians might turn the same way as the dwarfs? Somebody's coming after us, I think, said Puzzle suddenly. They stopped and listened. Sure enough, there was a thump, thump of small feet behind them. Who goes there? shouted the king. Only me, sir, came a voice. Uh, me, uh, Poggin, the dwarf. Uh, I've only just managed to get away from the others. Uh, I'm on your side, sire, uh, and on Aslan's. If you put a dwarfish sword in my fist, I'd gladly strike a blow on the right side before all's done. Everyone crowded round him and welcomed him and praised him and slapped him on the back. Of course, one single dwarf could not make a very great difference, but it was somehow very cheering to have even one. The whole party brightened up, but Jill and Eustace didn't stay bright for very long, for they were now yawning their heads off and too tired to think about anything but bed. It was at the coldest hour of the night, just before dawn, that they got back to the tower. If there had been a meal ready for them, they would have been glad enough to eat, but the bother and delay of getting one was not to be thought of. They drank from a stream, splashed their faces with water, and tumbled into their bunks, except for Puzzle and Jewel, who said they'd be more comfortable outside. This perhaps was just as well, for a unicorn and a fat, full-grown donkey indoors always make a room feel rather crowded. Narnian dwarfs, though less than four feet high, are for their size about the toughest and strongest creatures there are, so that Poggin, in spite of a heavy day and a late night, woke fully refreshed before any of the others. He at once took Jill's bow, went out, and shot a couple of wood pigeons. Then he sat plucking them on the doorstep and chatting to Jewel and Puzzle. Puzzle looked and felt a good deal better this morning. Jewel, being a unicorn and therefore one of the noblest and most delicate of beasts, had been very kind to him, talking to him about things of the sort they could both understand, like grass and sugar and the care of one's hooves. When Jill and Eustace came out of the tower yawning and rubbing their eyes at almost half-past ten, the dwarf showed them where they could gather plenty of a Narnian weed called wild fresney, which looks rather like our wood sorrel, but tastes a good deal nicer when cooked. It needs a little butter and pepper to make it perfect, but they hadn't these. So that what with one thing and another, they had the makings of a capital stew for their breakfast or dinner, whichever you choose to call it. Tyrion went a little further off into the wood with an axe and brought back some branches for fuel. While the meal was cooking, which seemed a very long time, especially as it smelled nicer and nicer the nearer it came to being done, the king found a complete dwarfish outfit for Poggin, mail shirt, helmet, shield, sword, belt, and dagger. Then he inspected Eustace's sword and found that Eustace had put it back in the sheath all messy from killing the Kalorman. He was scolded for that and made to clean and polish it. All this while, Jill went to and fro, sometimes stirring the pot and sometimes looking out enviously at the donkey and the unicorn who were contentedly grazing. 
how many times that morning she wished she could eat grass. But when the meal came, everyone felt it had been worth waiting for, and there were second helpings all round. When everyone had eaten as much as he could, the three humans and the dwarf came and sat on the doorstep. The four-footed ones lay down facing them. The dwarf, with permission both from Jill and from Tyrion, lit his pipe, and the king said, "'Now, friend Poggin, you have more news of the enemy belike than we. Tell us all you know. And first, what tale do they tell of my escape?' "'As cunning a tale, sire, as ever was devised,' said Poggin. "'It was the cat, Ginger, who told it, and most likely made it up, too. "'This Ginger, sire—oh, he's a sly boot, if ever a cat was—said he was walking past the tree to which those villains bound your majesty, and he said—saving uh, your reverence—that you were howling and swearing and cursing Aslan. "'Language I wouldn't like to repeat.' were the words he used, looking ever so prim and proper. You know the way a cat can when it pleases. And then, says Ginger, Aslan himself suddenly appeared in a flash of lightning and swallowed your majesty up at one mouthful. All the beasts trembled at this story, and some fainted right away. And, of course, the ape followed it up. There, he says, see what Aslan does to those who don't respect him. Let that be a warning to you all. And the poor creatures wailed and whined and said, It will, it will. So that in the upshot, your majesty's escape has not set them thinking whether you still have loyal friends to aid you, but only made them more afraid and more obedient to the ape. What devilish policy, said Tyrion. This ginger, then, is close in the ape's councils. It's more a question by now, sire, if the ape is in his councils replied the dwarf. The ape has taken to drinking, you see. My belief is that the plot is now mostly carried on by Ginger or Rishta, uh, that's the Kalormin captain, and I think some words that Ginger has scattered among the dwarfs are chiefly to blame for the scurvy return they made you, and I'll tell you why. One of those dreadful midnight meetings had just broken up the night before last, and I'd gone a bit of the way home when I found I'd left my pipe behind. It was a real good un, an old favourite, so I went back to look for it. But before I got to the place where I'd been sitting, it, it was as black as pitch there, I heard a cat's voice say, Mew, and a Kalorman voice say, Yeah, speak softly. So I just stood as still as if I was frozen. And these two were Ginger and Rishta Tarkan, as they call him. Noble Tarkan, said the cat in that silky voice of his, I just wanted to know exactly what we both meant today about Aslan meaning no more than Tash. Doubtless, most sagacious of cats, says the other, you have perceived my meaning. You mean says Ginger, that there is no such person as either. All who are enlightened know that, said the Takan. Then we can understand one another, purrs the cat. Do you, like me, grow a little weary of the ape? A stupid, greedy brute, says the other. But we must use him for the present. Thou and I must provide for all things in secret and make the ape do our will. 
And it would be better, wouldn't it, said Ginger, to let some of the more enlightened Narnians into our councils, one by one, as we find them apt, for the beasts who really believe in Aslan may turn at any moment, and will, if the ape's folly betrays his secret. But those who care neither for Tash nor Aslan, but have only an eye to their own profit, and such reward as the Tisrock may give them, when Narnia is a Kalorman province, will be firm. Excellent cat, said the captain, but choose which ones carefully. While the dwarf had been speaking, the day seemed to have changed. It had been sunny when they sat down. Now Puzzle shivered. Jewel shifted his head uneasily. Jill looked up. It's clouding over, she said. And it's so cold, said Puzzle. Cold enough by the lion, said Tyrion, blowing on his hands. And, oh, what foul smell is this? Phew, gasped Eustace. It's like something... Dead? Is there a dead bird somewhere about? And, and why didn't we notice it before? With a great upheaval, Jewel scrambled to his feet and pointed with his horn. Look, he cried, look at it, look, look. Then all six of them saw, and over all their faces there came an expression of uttermost dismay. Chapter 8 what news the eagle brought. In the shadow of the trees on the far side of the clearing, something was moving. It was gliding very slowly northward. At first glance, you might have mistaken it for smoke, for it was grey and you could see things through it. But the deathly smell was not the smell of smoke. Also, this thing kept its shape instead of billowing and curling as smoke would have done. It was roughly the shape of a man, but it had the head of a bird, some bird of prey with a cruel curved beak. It had four arms, which it held high above its head, stretching them out northward as if it wanted to snatch all Narnia in its grip, and its fingers, all twenty of them, were curved like its beak and had long, pointed, bird-like claws instead of nails. It floated on the grass instead of walking, and the grass seemed to wither beneath it. After one look at it, Puzzle gave a screaming bray and darted into the tower, and Jill, who was no coward, as you know, hid her face in her hands to shut out the sight of it. The others watched it for perhaps a minute, until it streamed away into the thicker trees on their right and disappeared. Then the sun came out again, and the birds once more began to sing. Everyone started breathing properly again, and moved. They had all been still as statues while it was in sight. "'What was it?' said Eustace in a whisper. "'I have seen it once before,' said Tyrion, "'but that time it was carved in stone and overlaid with gold "'and had solid diamonds for eyes.' It was when I was no older than thou, and had gone as a guest to the Tisrock's court in Tashban. He took me into the great temple of Tash. There I saw it, carved above the altar. Then that, that thing was... 
"'Tash?' said Eustace. "'But instead of answering him, "'Tyrion slipped his arm behind Jill's shoulders and said, "'How is it with you, lady?' "'Uh, all right,' said Jill, "'taking her hands away from her pale face and trying to smile. "'I'm all right. "'It only made me feel a little sick for a moment.' "'It seems, then,' said the unicorn, "'that there is a real Tash after all.' "'Yes,' said the dwarf, "'and this fool of an ape who didn't believe in Tash "'will get more than he bargained for. "'He called for Tash. "'Tash has come. "'Where has it, he, the the thing, gone to?' said Jill. "'North, into the heart of Narnia,' said Tyrion. "'It has come to dwell among us. "'They have called it, and it has come.' "'Ho-ho-ho-ho!' chuckled the dwarf, rubbing his hairy hands together. "'It will be a surprise for the ape. "'People shouldn't call for demons unless they really mean what they say.' "'Who knows if Tash will be visible to the ape?' said Jewel. "'Where's Puzzle got to?' said Eustace. "'They all shouted out Puzzle's name, "'and Jill went round to the other side of the tower to see if he had gone there.' They were quite tired of looking for him when at last his large grey head peered cautiously out of the doorway, and he said, "'Has it gone away?' And when at last they got him to come out, he was shivering the way a dog shivers before a thunderstorm. "'I see now,' said Puzzle, "'that I I really have been a very bad donkey. I ought never to have listened to Shift.' I never thought things like this would begin to happen. If you'd spent less time saying you weren't clever, and more time trying to be as clever as you could be, began Eustace, but Jill interrupted him. Oh, leave poor old Puzzle alone, she said. It was all a mistake, wasn't it, Puzzle, dear? And she kissed him on the nose. Though rather shaken by what they had seen, the whole party now sat down again and went on with their talk. Jewel had little to tell them. While he was a prisoner, he had spent nearly all his time tied up at the back of the stable, and had, of course, heard none of the enemy's plans. He had been kicked, he'd done some kicking back, too, and beaten, and threatened with death, unless he would say that he believed it was Aslan who was brought out and shown to them by firelight every night. In fact, He was going to be executed this very morning if he had not been rescued. He didn't know what had happened to the lamb. The question they had to decide was whether they would go to Stable Hill again that night, show Puzzle to the Narnians, and try to make them see how they had been tricked, or whether they should steal away eastward to meet the help which Rune with the Centaur was bringing up from Ker Paravel and return against the ape and his Kalormans in force. Tyrion would very much like to have followed the first plan. He hated the idea of leaving the ape to bully his people one moment longer than need be. On the other hand... The way the dwarfs had behaved last night was a warning. Apparently one couldn't be sure how people would take it, even if he showed them puzzle. And there were the Kalorman soldiers to be reckoned with. Poggin thought there were about thirty of them. Tyrion felt sure that if the Narnians all rallied to his side, he and Jewel and the children and Poggin, puzzle didn't count for much, would have a good chance of beating them. 
But what if half the Narnians, including all the dwarfs, just sat and looked on, or even fought against him? The risk was too great, and there was, too, the cloudy shape of Tash. What might it do? And then, as Poggin pointed out, there was no harm in leaving the ape to deal with his own difficulties for a day or two. He would have no puzzle to bring out and show now. It wasn't easy to see what story he or Ginger could make up to explain that. If the beasts asked night after night to see Aslan, and no Aslan was brought out, surely even the simplest of them would get suspicious. In the end, they all agreed that the best thing was to go off and try to meet Runewit. As soon as they had decided this, it was wonderful how much more cheerful everyone became. I don't honestly think that this was because any of them was afraid of a fight, except perhaps Jill and Eustace, but I dare say that each of them, deep down inside, was very glad not to go any nearer, or not yet, to that horrible, bird-headed thing which, visible or invisible, was now probably haunting Stable Hill. Anyway, one always feels better when one has made up one's mind. Tyrion said they had better remove their disguises, as they didn't want to be mistaken for Kalormans and perhaps attacked by any loyal Narnians they might meet. The dwarf made up a horrid-looking mess of ashes from the hearth and grease out of the jar of grease which was kept for rubbing on swords and spearheads. Then they took off their Kalorman armor and went down to the stream. The nasty mixture made a lather just like soft soap. It was a pleasant, homely sight to see Tyrion and the two children kneeling beside the water and scrubbing the backs of their necks or puffing and blowing as they splashed the lather off. Then they went back to the tower with red, shiny faces, looking like people who have been given an extra good wash before a party. They rearmed themselves in true Narnian style, with straight swords and three-cornered shields. "'Body of me,' said Tyrion, "'that is better. I feel a true man again.' Puzzle begged very hard to have the lion-skin taken off him. He said it was too hot, and the way it was rucked up on his back was uncomfortable. Also, it made him look so silly. But they told him he would have to wear it a bit longer, for they still wanted to show him in that get-up to the other beasts, even though they were now going to meet Runewit first. What was left of the pigeon meat and rabbit meat was not worth bringing away, but they took some biscuits. Then Tyrion locked the door of the tower— and that was the end of their stay there. It was a little after two in the afternoon when they set out, and it was the first really warm day of that spring. The young leaves seemed to be much further out than yesterday. The snowdrops were over, but they saw several primroses. The sunlight slanted through the trees, birds sang, and always, though usually out of sight, there was the noise of running water. It was hard to think of horrible things like Tash. The children felt, this is really Narnia at last. Even Tyrion's heart grew lighter as he walked ahead of them, humming an old Narnian marching song which had the refrain, Ho, rumble, 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 drumble, bud. After the king came Eustace and Poggin the dwarf. Poggin was telling Eustace the names of all the Narnian trees, birds, and plants, which he didn't know already. Sometimes Eustace would tell him about English ones. 
After them came Puzzle, and after him, Jill and Jewel, walking very close together. Jill had, as you might say, quite fallen in love with the unicorn. She thought, and she wasn't far wrong, that he was the shiningest, delicatest, most graceful animal she had ever met. And he was so gentle and soft of speech that if you hadn't known, you would hardly have believed how fierce and terrible he could be in battle. Oh, this is nice, said Jill, just walking along like this. I wish there could be more of this sort of adventure. It's a pity there's always so much happening in Narnia. But the unicorn explained to her that she was quite mistaken. He said that the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve were brought out of their own strange world into Narnia only at times when Narnia was stirred and upset, but she mustn't think it was always like that. In between their visits, there were hundreds and thousands of years when peaceful king followed peaceful king, till you could hardly remember their names or count their numbers, and there was really hardly anything to put into the history books. And he went on to talk of old queens and heroes whom she had never heard of. He spoke of Swan White, the queen, who had lived before the days of the White Witch and the Great Winter. Who was so beautiful that when she looked into any forest pool, the reflection of her face shone out of the water like a star by night for a year and a day afterward. He spoke of Moonwood, the hare, who had such ears that he could sit by Cauldron Pool under the thunder of the great waterfall, and hear what men spoke in whispers at Care Paravel. He told how King Gale. Who was ninth in descent from Frank, the first of all kings, had sailed far away into the eastern seas and delivered the Lone Islanders from a dragon, and how, in return, they had given him the Lone Islands to be part of the royal lands of Narnia forever. He talked of whole centuries in which all Narnia was so happy that notable dances and feasts, or at most tournaments, were the only things that could be remembered. And every day and week had been better than the last. And as he went on, the picture of all those happy years, all the thousands of them, piled up in Jill's mind. Till it was rather like looking down from a high hill onto a rich, lovely plain full of woods and waters and cornfields, which spread away and away till it got thin and misty from distance. And she said, "Oh, I do hope we can soon settle the ape and get back to those good ordinary times, and then I hope they'll go on for ever and ever and ever. Our world is going to have an end some day." Perhaps this one won't. Oh, Jewel, wouldn't it be lovely if Narnia just went on and on like what you said it has been? Nay, sister," answered Jewel. "All worlds draw to an end, except Aslan's own country. Well, at least," said Jill. "I hope the end of this one is millions of millions of millions of years away. Oh, hello! What are we stopping for?" The king and Eustace and the dwarf were all staring up at the sky. Jill shuddered, remembering what horrors they had seen already. But it was nothing of that sort this time. It was small and looked black against the blue. I dare swear," said the unicorn, "from its flight, that it is a talking bird."
So think I, said the king, but is it a friend or a spy of the apes? To me, sire, said the dwarf, it has a look of farsight, the eagle. Ought we to hide under the trees, said Eustace. Nay, said Tyrion, best stand still as rocks. He would see us for certain if we moved. Look, he wheels. He has seen us already, said Jewel. He is coming down in wide circles. Arawan string, lady, said Tyrion to Jill, but by no means shoot till I bid you. He may be a friend. If one had known what was going to happen next, it would have been a treat to watch the grace and ease with which the huge bird glided down. He alighted on a rocky crag a few feet from Tyrion, bowed his crested head, and said in his strange eagle's voice, Hail, king! Hail, Farsight, said Tyrion, and since you call me king, I may well believe that you are not a follower of the ape and his false Aslan. I'm glad of your coming. Sire, said the eagle, when you have heard my news, you will be sorrier at my coming than of the greatest woe that ever befell you. Tyrion's heart seemed to stop beating at these words, but he set his teeth and said, Tell on. Two sights I have seen, said Farsight. One was Care Paravel, filled with dead Narnians and living Kalormans. The Tisrock's banner advanced upon your royal battlements, and your subjects flying from the city this way and that into the woods. Care Paravel was taken from the sea. Twenty great ships of Kalorman put in there in the dark of the night before last night. No one could speak. And the other sight, five leagues nearer than Care Paravel, was Runewit the centaur lying dead with a Kalorman arrow in his side. I was with him in his last hour, and he gave me this message to your majesty. To remember that all worlds draw to an end, and that noble death is a treasure which no one is too poor to buy. So, said the king, after a long silence, Narnia is no more. Chapter 9 The Great Meeting on Stable Hill For a long time they could not speak, nor even shed a tear. Then the unicorn stamped the ground with his hoof, and shook his mane, and spoke. Sire, he said, there is now no need of counsel. We see that the ape's plans were laid deeper than we dreamed of. Doubtless he has been long in secret traffic with the Tisrock, and as soon as he had found the lion's skin, he sent him word to make ready his navy for the taking of Ker Paravel and all Narnia. Nothing now remains for us seven but to go back to Stable Hill, proclaim the truth, and take the adventure that Aslan sends us. And if by a great marvel we defeat those thirty Kalormans who are with the ape, then to turn again and die in battle with the far greater host of them that will soon march from Ker Paravel. Tyrion nodded, but he turned to the children and said, Now, friends, 
It is time for you to go hence into your own world. Doubtless you have done all that you were sent to do. But, but we've done nothing, said Jill, who was shivering, not with fear exactly, but because everything was so horrible. Nay, said the king, you loosed me from the tree. You glided before me like a snake last night in the wood and took puzzle, and you, Eustace, killed your man. But you are too young to share in such a bloody end as we others must meet tonight, or it may be three days hence. I entreat you, nay, I command you, to return to your own place. I should be put to shame if I let such young warriors fall in battle at my side. No, 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 said Jill, very white when she began speaking, and then suddenly very red, and then white again. We won't. I don't care what you say. We're going to stick with you whatever happens, aren't we, Eustace? Yes, but there's no need to get so worked up about it, said Eustace, who had stuck his hands in his pockets, forgetting how very odd that looks when you're wearing a male shirt. Because, you see, we haven't any choice. What's the good of talking about our going back? How? We've got no magic for doing it. This was very good sense, but... At the moment, Jill hated Eustace for saying it. He was fond of being dreadfully matter-of-fact when other people got excited. When Tyrion realized that the two strangers could not get home, unless Aslan suddenly whisked them away, he next wanted them to go across the southern mountains into Arkenland, where they might possibly be safe. But they didn't know their way, and there was no one to send with them. Also, as Poggin said, once the Kalormans had Narnia, they would certainly take Arkenland in the next week or so. The Tisrock had always wanted to have these northern countries for his own. In the end, Eustace and Jill begged so hard that Tyrion said they could come with him and take their chance, or, as he much more sensibly called it, the adventure that Aslan would send them. The king's first idea was that they should not go back to Stable Hill, they were sick of the very name of it by now, till after dark. But the dwarf told them that if they arrived there by daylight, they would probably find the place deserted, except perhaps for a Kalorman sentry. The beasts were far too frightened by what the ape, and Ginger, had told them about this new angry Aslan, or... Tashlan, to go near it except when they were called together for those horrible midnight meetings. And Kalormans are never good woodsmen. Poggin thought that even by daylight they could easily get round to somewhere behind the stable without being seen. This would be much harder to do when the night had come and the ape might be calling the beasts together and all the Kalormans were on duty. And when the meeting did begin, they could leave Puzzle at the back of the stable, completely out of sight, till the moment at which they wanted to produce him. This was obviously a good thing, for their only chance was to give the Narnians a sudden surprise. Everyone agreed, and the whole party set off on a new line, northwest, toward the hated hill. The eagle sometimes flew to and fro above them, sometimes he sat perched on Puzzle's back. No one, not even the king himself, except in some great need, would dream of riding on a unicorn. This time Jill and Eustace walked together. They had been feeling very brave when they were begging to be allowed to come with the others, but now they didn't feel brave at all. Pole, said Eustace in a whisper, 
I may as well tell you I've got the wind up. Oh, you're all right, Scrub, said Jill. You can fight, but I... I I'm just shaking, if you want to know the truth. Oh, shaking's nothing, said Eustace. I'm feeling I'm going to be sick. Don't talk about that, for goodness sake, said Jill. They went on in silence for a minute or two. Pole, said Eustace presently. What, said she? What'll happen if we get killed here? Well, we'll be dead, I suppose. But, I mean, what will happen in our own world? Shall we wake up and find ourselves back in that train? Or shall we just vanish and never be heard of any more? Or shall we be dead in England? Gosh, I never thought of that. It'll be rum for Peter and the others if they saw me waving out of the window, and then when the train comes in we're nowhere to be found. Or if they found to... I, I mean, if we're dead over there in England... Oh, said Jill, what a horrid idea. It would be horrid for us, said Eustace. We shouldn't be there. I almost wish... No, I don't, though, said Jill. What were you going to say? I was going to say I wish we'd never come, but I don't, I don't, I don't, even if we are killed... I'd rather be killed fighting for Narnia than grow old and stupid at home and perhaps go about in a bath chair and then die in the end just the same. Or be smashed up by British railways. Why do you say that? Well, when that awful jerk came, the one that seemed to throw us into Narnia, I thought it was the beginning of a railway accident, so I was jolly glad to find ourselves here instead. While Jill and Eustace were talking about this, the others were discussing their plans and becoming less miserable. That was because they were now thinking of what was to be done this very night, and the thought of what had happened to Narnia, the thought that all her glories and joys were over, was pushed away into the back part of their minds. The moment they stopped talking, it would come out and make them wretched again. But they kept on talking. Poggin was really quite cheerful about the night's work they had to do. He was sure that the boar and the bear and probably all the dogs would come over to their side at once, and he couldn't believe that all the other dwarfs would stick to Griffel, and fighting by firelight and in and out among the trees would be an advantage to the weaker side, and then, if they could win tonight, need they really throw their lives away by meeting the main Kalorman army a few days later? Why not hide in the woods, or even up in the western wastes beyond the great waterfall, and live like outlaws? And they might gradually get stronger and stronger, for talking beasts and Arkenlanders would be joining them every day. And at last they'd come out of hiding and sweep the Kalormans, who would have got careless by then, out of the country, and Narnia would be revived. After all, something very like that had happened in the time of King Miraz. And Tyrion heard all this, and thought, but what about Tash? And felt in his bones that none of it was going to happen. But he didn't say so. When they got nearer to Stable Hill, of course, everyone became quiet. 
Then the real woodwork began. From the moment at which they first saw the hill to the moment at which they all arrived at the back of the stable, it took them over two hours. It's the sort of thing one couldn't describe properly unless one wrote pages and pages about it. The journey from each bit of cover to the next was a separate adventure, and there were very long waits in between and several false alarms. If you're a good scout or a good guide, you will know already what it must have been like. By about sunset, they were all safe in a clump of holly trees about fifteen yards behind the stable. They all munched some biscuit and lay down. Then came the worst part the waiting. Luckily for the children, they slept for a couple of hours. But of course, they woke up when the night grew cold, and what was worse, woke up very thirsty and with no chance of getting a drink. Puzzle just stood, shivering a little with nervousness, and said nothing. But Tyrion, with his head against Jewel's flank, slept as soundly as if he were in his royal bed at Care Paravel, till the sound of a gong beating awoke him, and he sat up and saw that there was firelight on the far side of the stable, and knew that the hour had come. Kiss me, Jewel, he said, for certainly this is our last night on earth. And if ever I offended against you in any matter, great or small, forgive me now. Dear King, said the unicorn, I could almost wish you had, so that I might forgive it. Farewell. We have known great joys together. If Aslan gave me my choice, I would choose no other life than the life I have had, and no other death. Than the one we go to. Then they woke up Farsight, who was asleep with his head under his wing. It made him look as if he had no head at all, and crept forward to the stable. They left Puzzle, not without a kind word, for no one was angry with him now, just behind it, telling him not to move till someone came to fetch him, and took up their position at one end of the stable. The bonfire had not been lit for long and was just beginning to blaze up. It was only a few feet away from them, and the great crowd of Narnian creatures were on the other side of it, so that Tyrion could not at first see them very well, though, of course, he saw dozens of eyes shining with the reflection of the fire, as you've seen a rabbit's or cat's eyes in the headlights of a car. And just as Tyrion took his place, the gong stopped beating, and from somewhere on his left, three figures appeared. One was Rishda Takan, the Kalorman captain. The second was the ape. He was holding on to the Takan's hand with one paw, and kept whimpering and muttering, Not so fast, don't go so fast, I'm not at all well. Oh, my poor head. These midnight meetings are getting too much for me. Apes aren't meant to be up at night. It's not as if I was a rat or a bat. Oh, my poor head. On the other side of the ape, walking very soft and stately, with his tail straight up in the air, came Ginger the cat. They were heading for the bonfire and were so close to Tyrion that they would have seen him at once if they'd looked in the right direction. Fortunately, they did not. But Tyrion heard Rishda say to Ginger in a low voice, Now, cat, to thy post. See thou play thy part well. Meow, meow, count on me, said Ginger. 
Then he stepped away beyond the bonfire and sat down in the front row of the assembled beasts, in the audience, as you might say. For really, as it happened, the whole thing was rather like a theatre. The crowd of Narnians were like the people in the seats— the little grassy place just in front of the stable where the bonfire burned and the ape and the captain stood to talk to the crowd was like the stage. The stable itself was like the scenery at the back of the stage, and Tyrion and his friends were like people peering round from behind the scenery. It was a splendid position. If any of them stepped forward into the full firelight, all eyes would be fixed on him at once." On the other hand, so long as they stood still in the shadow of the end wall of the stable, it was a hundred to one against their being noticed. Rijda Tarkhan dragged the ape up close to the fire. The pair of them turned to face the crowd, and this, of course, meant that their backs were toward Tyrion and his friends. "'Now, monkey,' said Rijda Tarkhan in a low voice, "'say the words that wiser heads are put into thy mouth.' and hold up thy head. As he spoke, he gave the ape a little prod or kick from behind with the point of his toe. Don't leave me alone, muttered Shift, but he sat up straighter and began in a louder voice. Now listen, all of you. A terrible thing has happened. A, a wicked thing. The wickedest thing that ever was done in Narnia. And Aslan, Tashlan fool, whispered Rishta Tarkhan. Uh, uh, Tashlan, I mean, of course, said the ape, is very angry about it. There was a terrible silence while the beasts waited to hear what new trouble was in store for them. The little party by the end wall of the stable also held their breath. What on earth was coming now? Yes, said the ape. At this very moment, when the terrible one himself is among us, there in the stable, just behind me, one wicked beast has chosen to do what you think no one would dare to do, even if he were a thousand miles away. It has dressed itself up in a lion's skin and is wandering about in these very woods pretending to be Aslan. Jill wondered for a moment if the ape had gone mad. Was he going to tell the whole truth? A roar of horror and rage went up from the beasts. <sighs> came the growls. Who is he? Where is he? Just let me get my teeth into him. It was seen last night, screamed the ape. But it got away. It's a donkey, a common, miserable ass. If any of you see that ass, growled the beasts. We will, we will. He'd better keep out of our way. Jill looked at the king. His mouth was open and his face was full of horror, and then she understood the devilish cunning of the enemy's plan. By mixing a little truth with it, they had made their lie far stronger. What was the good now of telling the beast that an ass had been dressed up as a lion to deceive them? The ape would only say, "'That's just what I've said.' What was the good of showing them puzzle in his lion skin? They would only tear him to pieces. "'That's taken the wind out of our sails.' whispered Eustace. "'The ground is taken from under our feet,' said Tyrion. "'Curse it, curse it, cleverness,' said Poggin. "'I'll be sworn that this new lie is of Ginger's making.'" Chapter 10 Who Will Go Into the Stable? Jill felt something tickling her ear. It was Jewel the Unicorn whispering to her with the wide whisper of a horse's mouth. 
As soon as she heard what he was saying, she nodded and tiptoed back to where Puzzle was standing. Quickly and quietly, she cut the last cords that bound the lion-skin to him. It wouldn't do for him to be caught with that on after what the ape had said. She would have liked to have hidden the skin somewhere very far away, but it was too heavy. The best she could do was to kick it in among the thickest bushes. Then she made signs to Puzzle to follow her, and they both joined the others. The ape was speaking again. And after a horrid thing like that, Aslan, uh, Tashlan is angrier than ever. He says he's been a great deal too good to you, coming out every night to be looked at, see? Well, he's not coming out any more. Howls and mewings and squeals and grunts were the animal's answer to this. But suddenly a quite different voice broke in with a loud laugh. "'Hark what the monkey says!' it shouted. "'We know why he isn't going to bring his precious Aslan out. "'I'll tell you why. "'Because he hasn't got him. "'He never had anything except an old donkey with a lion's skin on its back. "'Now he's lost that, and he doesn't know what to do.' "'Tyrion could not see the faces on the other side of the fire very well, "'but he guessed that this was Griffel, the chief dwarf, "'and he was quite certain of it when, a second later, all the dwarfs' voices joined in singing, Don't know what to do, don't know what to do, don't know what to do. Silence! thundered Rishta Tarkhan. Silence, children of mud! Listen to me, you other Narnians, lest I give command to my warriors to fall upon you with the edge of the sword. The Lord Shift has already told you of that wicked ass. Do you think, because of him, that there is no real Tashlan in the stable? Do you? Beware, beware. No, no, shouted most of the crowd. But the dwarf said, That's right, Darkie, you've got it. Come on, monkey, show us what's in the stable. Seeing is believing. When next there was a moment's quiet, the ape said, You dwarfs think you're very clever, don't you? But not so fast. I never said you couldn't see Tashlan. Anyone who likes can see him. The whole assembly became silent. Then, after nearly a minute, the bear began in a slow, puzzled voice. I don't quite understand all this, it grumbled. I thought you said... You thought, repeated the ape, as if anyone could call what goes on in your head thinking. Listen, you others. Anyone can see Tashlan, but he's not coming out. You have to go in and see him. Oh, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, said dozens of voices. Uh, that's what we wanted. We can go in and see him face to face, and, and now he'll be kind, and it will all be as it used to be. And the birds chattered, and the dogs barked excitedly. Then suddenly there was a great stirring and a noise of creatures rising to their feet, and in a second the whole lot of them would have been rushing forward and trying to crowd into the stable door altogether. But the ape shouted, Get back! Quiet! Not so fast! The beasts stopped, many of them with one paw in the air, many with tails wagging, all of them with heads on one side. I thought... You said, began the bear, but Shift interrupted. Anyone can go in, he said, but one at a time. Who'll go first? He didn't say he was feeling very kind. He's been licking his lips a lot since he swallowed up the wicked king the other night. 
He's been growling a good deal this morning. I wouldn't much like to go into that stable myself tonight, but just as you please. Who'd like to go in first? Don't blame me if he swallows you whole or blasts you into a cinder with the mere terror of his eyes. That's your affair. Now then, who's first? What about one of you dwarfs? Dilly dilly, come and be killed, sneered Griffle. How do we know what you've got in there? Ho, 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 cried the ape. So you're beginning to think there's something there, eh? Well, all you beasts were making noise enough a minute ago. What struck you all dumb? Who's going in first? But the beasts all stood looking at one another and began backing away from the stable. Very few tails were wagging now. The ape waddled to and fro, jeering at them. Ha 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 ha! He chuckled. I thought you were all so eager to see Tashlin face to face. Changed your mind, eh? Tyrion bent his head to hear something that Jill was trying to whisper in his ear. What do you think is really inside the stable? She said. Who knows? Said Tyrion. Two Kalormans with drawn swords, as likely as not. One on each side of the door. You don't think, said Jill. It might be, you know that. Horrid thing we saw, Tash himself whispered Tyrion. There's no knowing, but courage, child, we are all between the paws of the true Aslan. Then a most surprising thing happened. Ginger the cat said in a cool, clear voice, not at all as if he was excited, "I'll go in if you like." Every creature turned and fixed its eyes on the cat. Mark the subtlety, sire," said Poggin to the king. "This cursed cat is in the plot, in the very center of it. Whatever is in the stable will not hurt him. I'll be bound. Then Ginger will come out again and say that he has seen some wonder." But Tyrion had no time to answer him. The ape was calling the cat to come forward. "Ha ha ha!" said the ape. "So you, a pert puss, would look upon him face to face. Come on, then." I'll open the door for you. Don't blame me if he scares the whiskers off your face. That's your affair. And the cat got up and came out of its place in the crowd, walking primly and daintily with its tail in the air, not one hair on its sleek coat out of place. It came on till it had passed the fire and was so close that Tyrion, from where he stood with his shoulder against the end wall of the stable, could look right into its face. Its big green eyes never blinked. Cool as a cucumber," muttered Eustace. "It knows it has nothing to fear." The ape, chuckling and making faces, shuffled across beside the cat, put up his paw, drew the bolt, and opened the door. Tyrion thought he could hear the cat purring as it walked into the dark doorway. <coughs> the most horrible caterwaul you ever heard made everyone jump. You've been wakened yourself by cats quarrelling or making love on the roof in the middle of the night. You know the sound. This 
was worse. The ape was knocked head over heels by Ginger coming back out of the stable at top speed. If you'd not known he was a cat, you might have thought he was a ginger-coloured streak of lightning. He shot across the open grass, back into the crowd. No one wants to meet a cat in that state. You could see animals getting out of his way to left and right. He dashed up a tree, whisked round and hung head downward. His tail was bristling out till it was nearly as thick as his whole body. His eyes were like saucers of green fire. Along his back, every single hair stood on end. I give my beard, whispered Poggin, to know whether that brute is only acting or whether it has really found something in there that frightened it. Peace, friend, said Tyrion, for the captain and the ape were also whispering, and he wanted to hear what they said. He did not succeed, except that he heard the ape once more whimpering, oh, My head! My head! But he got the idea that those two were almost as puzzled by the cat's behaviour as himself. Now, Ginger, said the captain, enough of that noise. Tell them what thou hast seen. <coughs> screamed the cat. Art thou not called a talking beast? said the captain. Then hold thy devilish noise and talk. What followed was rather horrible. Tyrion felt quite certain, and so did the others, that the cat was trying to say something, but nothing came out of his mouth except the ordinary, ugly cat noises you might hear from any angry or frightened old Tom in a backyard in England. And the longer he caterwauled, the less like a talking beast he looked. Uneasy whimperings and little sharp squeals broke out from among the other animals. Look, look, said the voice of the bear. It can't talk. It has forgotten how to talk. It has gone back to being a dumb beast. Look at its face. Everyone saw that it was true. And then the greatest terror of all fell upon those Narnians, for every one of them had been taught, when only a chick or a puppy or a cub, how Aslan, at the beginning of the world, had turned the beasts of Narnia into talking beasts, and warned them that if they weren't good, they might one day be turned back again and be like the poor witless animals one meets in other countries. And now it is coming upon us! they moaned. Mercy, mercy, wailed the beasts. Spare us, lordship, stand between us and Aslan. You must always go in and speak to him for us. We daren't, we daren't. Ginger disappeared further up into the tree. No one ever saw him again. Tyrion stood with his hand on his sword hilt and his head bowed. He was dazed with the horrors of that night. Sometimes he thought it would be best to draw his sword at once and rush upon the Kalormans. The next moment he thought it would be better to wait and see what new turn affairs might take. And now a new turn came. "'My father!' came a clear ringing voice from the left of the crowd. Tyrion knew at once that it was one of the Kalormans speaking, for in the Tisrock's army the common soldiers called the officers my master, but the officers called their senior officers my father. Jill and Eustace didn't know this, but after looking this way and that, they saw the speaker, for of course people at the sides of the crowd were easier to see than people in the middle, where the glare of the fire made all beyond it look rather black. 
He was young and tall and slender and even rather beautiful in the dark, haughty, Kalorman way. My father, he said to the captain, I also desire to go in. Peace, Emmeth, said the captain. Who called thee to counsel? Does it become a boy to speak? My father, said Emmeth, truly I am younger than thou. Yet I also am of the blood of the Tarkans, even as thou art, and I also am the servant of Tash, therefore... Silence, said Rishta Tarkan. Am I not thy captain? Thou hast nothing to do with this stable. It is for the Narnians. Nay, my father, answered Emmeth. Thou hast said that their Aslan and our Tash are all one, and if that is the truth, then Tash himself is in yonder. And how then sayest thou that I have nothing to do with him? for gladly would I die a thousand deaths if I might look once on the face of Tash. Thou art a fool, and understandest nothing, said Rishda Tarkan. These be high matters. Emeth's face grew sterner. Is it not true, then, that Tash and Aslan are all one? he asked. Has the ape lied to us? Of course they're all one, said the ape. Swear it, ape, said Emeth. "'Oh, dear,' whimpered Shift. "'I wish you'd all stop bothering me. "'My head does ache. "'Yes, yes, I swear it.' "'Then, my father,' said Emmeth, "'I'm utterly determined to go in.' "'Fool!' began Rishda Tarkan, "'but at once the dwarfs began shouting, "'Come along, Darky, why don't you let him in? "'Why do you let Narnians in and keep your own people out? "'What have you got in there that you don't want your own men to meet?' Tyrion and his friends could only see the back of Rishta Tarkan, so they never knew what his face looked like as he shrugged his shoulders and said, "'Bear witness all that I am guiltless of this young fool's blood. Get thee in, rash boy, and make haste.' Then, just as Ginger had done, Emmeth came walking forward into the open strip of grass between the bonfire and the stable. His eyes were shining, his face very solemn, his hand was on his sword-hilt, and he carried his head high. Jill felt like crying when she looked at his face, and Jewel whispered in the king's ear, By the lion's mane, I almost love this young warrior, Kalorman though he be. He is worthy of a better god than Tash. I do wish we knew what is really inside there, said Eustace. Emmeth opened the door, and went in into the black mouth of the stable. He closed the door behind him. Only a few moments passed, but it seemed longer, before the door opened again. A figure in Kalorman armor reeled out, fell on its back, and lay still. The door closed behind it. The captain leapt toward it and bent down to stare at its face. He gave a start of surprise. Then he recovered himself and turned to the crowd, crying out, "'The rash boy has had his will. He has looked on Tash and is dead. Take warning, all of you!' "'We will, we will,' said the poor beasts. But Tyrion and his friends stared first at the dead Kalorman, and then at one another, for they, being so close, could see what the crowd, being further off and beyond the fire, could not see.' This dead man was not Emmeth. He was quite different, an older man, thicker and not so tall, with a big beard. 
<laughs> chuckled the ape. Any more? Anyone else want to go in? Well, as you're all shy, I'll choose the next. You, you boar, on you come. Drive him up, Kalormans. He shall see Tashlin face to face. Oh, grunted the boar, rising heavily to his feet. Come on, then. Try my tusks. When Tyrion saw that brave beast getting ready to fight for its life, and Kalorman soldiers beginning to close in on him with their drawn scimitars, and no one going to its help, something seemed to burst inside him. He no longer cared if this was the best moment to interfere or not. Swords out, he whispered to the others. Arrow on the string. Follow. Next moment, the astonished Narnians saw seven figures leap forth in front of the stable, four of them in shining mail. The king's sword flashed in the firelight as he waved it above his head and cried in a great voice, Here stand I, Tyrion of Narnia, in Aslan's name, to prove with my body that Tash is a foul fiend, the ape a manifold traitor, and these Kalormans worthy of death. To my side, all true Narnians, would you wait till your new masters have killed you all one by one? Chapter 11 The Pace Quickens Quick as lightning, Rishda Tarkan leapt back out of reach of the king's sword. He was no coward, and would have fought single-handedly against Tyrion and the dwarf if need were— but he could not take on the eagle and the unicorn as well. He knew how eagles can fly into your face and peck at your eyes and blind you with their wings, and he had heard from his father, who had met Narnians in battle, that no man, except with arrows or a long spear, can match a unicorn, for it rears on its hind legs as it falls upon you, and then you have its hoofs and its horn and its teeth to deal with all at once. So he rushed into the crowd and stood calling out, To me, to me, warriors of the Tisrock, may he live forever! To me, all loyal Narnians, lest the wrath of Tashland fall upon you! While this was happening, two other things happened as well. The ape had not realized his danger as quickly as the Tarkan. For a second or so, he remained squatting beside the fire, staring at the newcomers. Then Tyrion rushed upon the wretched creature, picked it up by the scruff of the neck, and dashed back to the stable, shouting, "'Open the door!' Poggin opened it. "'Go and drink your own medicine, Shift,' said Tyrion, and hurled the ape through into the darkness." But as the dwarf banged the door shut again, a blinding greenish-blue light shone out from the inside of the stable. The earth shook, and there was a strange noise, a clucking and screaming as if it were the hoarse voice of some monstrous bird. The beasts moaned and howled and called out, "'Tashlan, hide us from him!' And many fell down, and many hid their faces in their wings or paws." No one except Farsight the eagle, who has the best eyes of all living things, noticed the face of Rishda Tarkan at that moment. And from what Farsight saw there, he knew at once that Rishda was just as surprised and nearly frightened as everyone else. There goes one, thought Farsight, who has called on gods he does not believe in. How will it be with him if they have already come?
The third thing, which also happened at the same moment, was the only really beautiful thing that night. Every single talking dog in the whole meeting—there were fifteen of them—came bounding and barking joyously to the king's side. They were mostly great big dogs with thick shoulders and heavy jaws. Their coming was like the breaking of a great wave on the sea beach. It nearly knocked you down. For though they were talking dogs, they were just as doggy as they could be, and they all stood up and put their front paws on the shoulders of the humans and licked their faces. All. All saying at once, "Welcome, welcome! We'll help! We'll help! 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 Show us how to help! Show us how! Ho! 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 Ho!" It was so lovely that it made you want to cry. This, at last, was the sort of thing they had been hoping for. And when a moment later several little animals, mice and moles and a squirrel or so, came pattering up, squealing with joy and saying, "See! See! We're here!" And when after that the bear and the boar came too, Eustace began to feel that perhaps after all everything might be going to come right. But Tyrion gazed round and saw how very few of the animals had moved. To me, to me! He called. Have you all turned coward since I was your king? We daren't," whimpered dozens of voices. Tashlan would be angry. Shield us from Tashlan. Where are all the talking horses? Asked Tyrion. We've seen, we've seen. Squealed the mice. The ape has made them work. They're all tied down at the bottom of the hill. Then all you little ones said, Tyrion, you nibblers and gnawers and nutcrackers, away with you as fast as you can scamper, and see if the horses are on our side. And if they are, get your teeth into the ropes and gnaw till the horses are free, and bring them hither. With a good will, sire, came the small voices, and with a whisk of tails, those sharp-eyed and sharp-toothed folk were off. Tyrion smiled for mere love as he saw them go. But it was already time to be thinking of other things. Rishda Tarkan was giving his orders. Forward, he said. Take all of them alive if you can, and hurl them into the stables or drive them into it. When they're all in, we will put fire to it and make them an offering to the great god Tash. Ah, said Farsight to himself. So that is how he hopes to win Tash's pardon for his unbelief. The enemy line, about half of Rishda's force, was now moving forward, and Tyrion had barely time to give his orders. Out on the left, Jill, and try to shoot all you may before they reach us. Boar and bear next to her. Poggin on my left. Eustace on my right. Hold the right wing, Jewel. Stand by him, Puzzle, and use your hoofs. Hover and strike, Farsight. You dogs, just behind us. Go in among them after the swordplay has begun. Aslan, to our aid! Eustace stood with his heart beating terribly, hoping and hoping that he would be brave. He had never seen anything, though he had seen both a dragon and a sea serpent, that made his blood run so cold as that line of dark-faced, bright-eyed men. There were fifteen Kalormans, a talking bull of Narnia, Slinky the fox, and Raggle the satyr. Then he heard twang and zip on his left, and one Kalorman fell. Then twang and zip. Again, and the satyr was down. Oh, well done, daughter! Came Tyrion's voice, and then, the enemy were upon them.
Eustace could never remember what happened in the next two minutes. It was all like a dream, the sort you have when your temperature is over a hundred, until he heard Rishta Tarkhan's voice calling out from the distance, Retire! Back hither and reform! Then Eustace came to his senses and saw the Kalormans scampering back to their friends, but not all of them. Two lay dead, pierced by Jewel's horn, one by Tyrion's sword. The fox lay dead at his own feet, and he wondered if it was he who had killed it. The bull also was down, shot through the eye by an arrow from Jill, and gashed in his side by the boar's tusk. But our side had its losses too. Three dogs were killed, and a fourth was hobbling behind the line on three legs and whimpering. The bear lay on the ground, moving feebly. Then it mumbled in its throaty voice, bewildered to the last. I... I don't... understand. Laid its big head down on the grass as quietly as a child going to sleep. And never moved again. In fact, the first attack had failed. Eustace didn't seem able to be glad about it. He was so terribly thirsty, and his arm ached so. As the defeated Kalormans went back to their commander, the dwarfs began jeering at them. "'Had enough, darkies!' they yelled. "'Don't you like it? Why doesn't your great Takan go and fight himself instead of sending you to be killed? Poor darkies!' "'Dwarfs!' cried Tyrion. Come here and use your swords, not your tongues. There's still time. Dwarfs of Narnia, you can fight well, I know. Come back to your allegiance. Yeah, sneered the dwarfs. Not likely. You're just as big humbugs as the other lot. We don't want any kings. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. Boo! Then the drum began. Not a dwarf drum this time, but a big bullseyed Kalorman drum. The children from the very first hated the sound. Boom, boom, ba-ba-boom, it went. But they would have hated it far worse if they had known what it meant. Tyrion did. It meant that there were other Kalorman troops somewhere near, and that Rishta Tarkhan was calling them to his aid. Tyrion and Jewel looked at one another sadly. They had just begun to hope that they might win that night, but it would be all over with them if new enemies appeared. Tyrion gazed despairingly round. Several Narnians were standing with the Kalormans, whether through treachery or in honest fear of Tashlan. Others were sitting still, staring, not likely to join either side. But there were fewer animals now. The crowd was much smaller. Clearly, several of them had just crept quietly away during the fighting. Boom! Boom! Ba-ba-boom! went the horrible drum. Then another sound began to mix with it. Listen, said Jewel. And then, look, said Farsight. A moment later, there was no doubt what it was. With a thunder of hooves, with tossing heads, widened nostrils, and waving manes, over a score of talking horses of Narnia came charging up the hill. The gnaws and nibblers had done their work. Poggin the dwarf and the children opened their mouths to cheer, but that cheer never came. 
Suddenly the air was full of the sound of twanging bowstrings and hissing arrows. It was the dwarfs who were shooting, and, for a moment, Jill could hardly believe her eyes. They were shooting the horses. Dwarfs are deadly archers. Horse after horse rolled over. Not one of those noble beasts ever reached the king. Little swine! shrieked Eustace, dancing in his rage. Dirty, filthy, treacherous little brutes! Even Jewel said, Shall I run after those dwarfs, sire, and split ten of them on my horn at each plunge? But Tyrion, with his face as stern as stone, said, Stand fast, Jewel. If you must weep, sweetheart, this was to Jill, turn your face aside and see you wet not your bowstring. And peace, Eustace, do not scold like a kitchen girl. No warrior scolds. Courteous words, or else hard knocks are his only language. But the dwarfs jeered back at Eustace. That was a surprise for you, little boy, eh? Thought we were on your side, did you? No fear. We don't want any talking horses. We don't want you to win any more than the other gang. You can't take us in. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. Rishta Tarkhan was still talking to his men, doubtless making arrangements for the next attack, and probably wishing he had sent his whole force into the first. The drum boomed on. Then, to their horror, Tyrion and his friends heard, far fainter as if from a long way off, an answering drum. Another body of Kalormans had heard Rishta's signal and were coming to support him. You would not have known from Tyrion's face that he had now given up all hope. Listen, he whispered in a matter-of-fact voice, we must attack now, before yonder miscreants are strengthened by their friends. Bethink you, sire, said Poggin, that here we have the good wooden wall of the stable at our backs. If we advance, shall we not be encircled and get sort points between our shoulders? I would say as you do, dwarf, said Tyrion, were it not their very plan to force us into the stable. The further we are from its deadly door, the better. The king is right, said Farsight. Away from this accursed stable, and whatever goblin lives inside it at all costs. Yes, let's do it, said Eustace. I'm coming to hate the very sight of it. Good, said Tyrion. Now, look yonder to our left. You see a great rock that gleams white like marble in the firelight. First, we will fall upon those Kalormans. You, maiden, shall move out on our left and shoot as fast as ever you may into their ranks. And you, eagle, fly at their faces from the right. Meanwhile, we others will be charging them. When we are so close, Jill, that you can no longer shoot at them for fear of striking us, go back to the white rock and wait. You others keep your ears wide, even in the fighting. We must put them to flight in a few minutes, or else not at all, for we are fewer than they. As soon as I call back, then rush to join Jill at the White Rock, where we shall have protection behind us, and can breathe a while. Now, be off, Jill. Feeling terribly alone, Jill ran about twenty feet, put her right leg back and her left leg forward, and set an arrow to her string. She wished her hands were not shaking so. 
That's a rotten shot, she said, as her first arrow sped toward the enemy and flew over their heads. But she had another on the string next moment. She knew that speed was what mattered. She saw something big and black darting into the faces of the Kalormans. That was farsight. First one man and then another dropped his sword and put up both hands to defend his eyes. Then one of her own arrows hit a man, and another hit a Narnian wolf who had, it seemed, joined the enemy. But she had been shooting only for a few seconds when she had to stop. With a flash of swords and of the boar's tusks and jewel's horn, and with deep baying from the dogs, Tyrion and his party were rushing on their enemies like men in a hundred yards race. Jill was astonished to see how unprepared the Kalorman seemed to be. She did not realize that this was the result of her work and the eagle's. Very few troops can keep on looking steadily to the front if they are getting arrows in their faces from one side and being pecked by an eagle on the other. Oh, well done, well done, shouted Jill. The king's party were cutting their way right into the enemy. The unicorn was tossing men as you'd toss a hayfork. Even Eustace seemed to Jill, who after all didn't know very much about swordsmanship, to be fighting brilliantly. The dogs were at the Kalorman's throats. It was going to work. It was victory at last. With a horrible, cold shock, Jill noticed a strange thing. Though Kalormans were falling at each Narnian sword stroke, they never seemed to get any fewer. In fact, there were actually more of them now than when the fight began. There were more every second. They were running up from every side. They were new Kalormans. These new ones had spears. There was such a crowd of them that she could hardly see her own friends. Then she heard Tyrion's voice crying, Back! To the rock! The enemy had been reinforced. The drum had done its work. Chapter 12 Through the Stable Door Jill ought to have been back at the White Rock already, but she had quite forgotten that part of her orders in the excitement of watching the fight. Now she remembered. She turned at once and ran to it, and arrived there barely a second before the others. It thus happened that all of them, for a moment, had their backs to the enemy. They all wheeled round the moment they had reached it. A terrible sight met their eyes. A Kalorman was running toward the stable door, carrying something that kicked and struggled. As he came between them and the fire, they could see clearly both the shape of the man and the shape of what he carried. It was Eustace. Tyrion and the unicorn rushed out to rescue him, but the Kalorman was now far nearer to the door than they. Before they had covered half the distance, he had flung Eustace in and shut the door on him. Half a dozen more Kalormans had run up behind him. They formed a line on the open space before the stable. There was no getting at it now. Even then, Jill remembered to keep her face turned aside well away from her bow. "'Even if I can't stop blubbing, I won't get my string wet,' she said. "'Where arrows?' said Poggin suddenly. "'Everyone ducked and pulled his helmet well over his nose. "'The dogs crouched behind. 
but though a few arrows came their way, it soon became clear that they were not being shot at. Griffel and his dwarfs were at their archery again. This time they were coolly shooting at the Kalormans. Keep it up, boys, came Griffel's voice. All together, carefully. We don't want darkies any more than we want monkeys. Or lions, or kings. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. Whatever else you may say about dwarfs, no one can say they aren't brave. They could easily have got away to some safe place. They preferred to stay and kill as many of both sides as they could, except when both sides were kind enough to save them trouble by killing one another. They wanted Narnia for their own. What perhaps they had not taken into account was that the Kalormans were mail-clad and the horses had had no protection. Also, the Kalormans had a leader. Rishta Tarkhan's voice cried out, Thirty of you keep watch on those fools by the white rock. The rest after me, that we may teach these sons of earth a lesson. Tyrion and his friends, still panting from the fight and thankful for a few minutes' rest, stood and looked on while the Tarkhan led his men against the dwarfs. It was a strange scene by now. The fire had sunk lower. The light it gave was now less and of a darker red. As far as one could see, the whole place of assembly was now empty except for the dwarfs and the Kalormans. In that light, one couldn't make out much of what was happening. It sounded as if the dwarfs were putting up a good fight. Tyrion could hear Griffel using dreadful language, and every now and then the Takan calling... Take all you can alive! Take them alive! Whatever that fight may have been like, it did not last long. The noise of it died away. Then Jill saw the Takan coming back to the stable. Eleven men followed him, dragging eleven bound dwarfs. Whether the others had all been killed, or whether some of them had got away, was never known. Throw them into the shrine of Tash, said Rishta Takan. And when the eleven dwarfs, one after the other, had been flung or kicked into that dark doorway, and the door had been shut again, he bowed low to the stable and said, "'These also are for thy burnt offering, Lord Tash!' And all the Kalormans banged the flats of their swords on their shields and shouted, "'Tash! Tash! The great god Tash! Inexorable Tash!' There was no nonsense about Tash Lan now. The little party by the White Rock watched these doings and whispered to one another. They had found a trickle of water coming down the rock, and all had drunk eagerly, Jill and Poggin and the king in their hands, while the four-footed ones lapped from the little pool which it had made at the foot of the stone. Such was their thirst that it seemed the most delicious drink they ever had in their lives, and while they were drinking they were perfectly happy and could not think of anything else. "'I feel in my bones,' said Poggin, "'that we shall all, one by one, "'pass through that dark door before morning. "'I can think of a hundred deaths I would rather have died.' "'It is indeed a grim door,' said Tyrion. "'It is more like a mouth.' "'Oh, can't we do anything to stop it?' said Jill in a shaken voice. "'Nay, fair friend,' said Jewel, nosing her gently. It may be for us the door to Aslan's country, and we shall sup at his table tonight. 
Rishda Tarkhan turned his back on the stable and walked slowly to a place in front of the white rock. Harken, he said. If the boar and the dogs and the unicorn will come over to me and put themselves in my mercy, their lives shall be spared. The boar shall go to a cage in the Tisrock's garden, the dogs to the Tisrock's kennels, and the unicorn, when I have sawn his horn off, shall draw a cart. But the eagle, the children, and he who was the king shall be offered to Tash this night. The only answer were growls. Get on, warriors, said the Tarkan. Kill the beasts, but take the two-legged ones alive. And then the last battle of the last king of Narnia began. What made it hopeless, even apart from the numbers of the enemy, was the spears. The Kalormans, who had been with the ape almost from the beginning, had had no spears. That was because they had come into Narnia by ones and twos, pretending to be peaceful merchants, and, of course, they had carried no spears, for a spear is not a thing you can hide. The new ones must have come in later, after the ape was already strong and they could march openly. The spears made all the difference. With a long spear, you can kill a boar before you're in reach of his tusks, and a unicorn before you're in reach of his horn, if you are very quick and keep your head. And now the leveled spears were closing in on Tyrion and his last friends. Next minute, they were all fighting for their lives. In a way, it wasn't quite so bad as you might think. When you were using every muscle to the full, ducking under a spear point here, leaping over it there, lunging forward, drawing back, wheeling round, you haven't much time to feel either frightened or sad. Tyrion knew he could do nothing for the others now. They were all doomed together. He vaguely saw the boar go down on one side of him, and Jewel fighting furiously on the other. Out of the corner of one eye he saw, but only just saw, a big Kalorman pulling Jill away somewhere by her hair, but he hardly thought about any of these things. His only thought now was to sell his life as dearly as he could. The worst of it was that he couldn't keep to the position in which he had started, under the white rock. A man who is fighting a dozen enemies at once must take his chances wherever he can, must dart in whenever he sees an enemy's breast or neck unguarded. In a very few strokes this may get you quite a distance from the spot where you began. Tyrion soon found that he was getting further and further to the right, nearer to the stable. He had a vague idea in his mind that there was some good reason for keeping away from it, but he couldn't now remember what that reason was, and anyway, he couldn't help it. All at once, everything came quite clear. He found he was fighting the Takan himself. The bonfire, what was left of it, was straight in front. He was, in fact, fighting in the very doorway of the stable, for it had been opened, and two Kalormans were holding the door, ready to slam it shut the moment he was inside. He remembered everything now, and he realized that the enemy had been edging him to the stable on purpose ever since the fight began. And while he was thinking this, he was still fighting the Takan as hard as he could. A new idea came into Tyrion's head. He dropped his sword, darted forward in under the sweep of the Takan scimitar, seized his enemy by the belt with both hands, and jumped back into the stable, shouting, 
Come in and meet Tash yourself. There was a deafening noise, as when the ape had been flung in. The earth shook, and there was a blinding light. The Kalorman soldiers outside screamed, Tash! Tash! and banged the door. If Tash wanted their own captain, Tash must have him. They, at any rate, did not want to meet Tash. For a moment or two, Tyrion did not know where he was, or even who he was. Then he steadied himself, blinked and looked around. It was not dark inside the stable, as he had expected. He was in strong light. That was why he was blinking. He turned to look at Rishda Tarkan, but Rishda was not looking at him. Rishda gave a great wail and pointed. Then he put his hands before his face and fell flat, face downward, on the ground. Tyrion looked in the direction where the Tarkan had pointed, and then he understood. A terrible figure was coming toward them. It was far smaller than the shape they had seen from the tower, though still much bigger than a man, and it was the same. It had a vulture's head and four arms. Its beak was open and its eyes blazed. A croaking voice came from its beak. Thou must call me into Narnia, Rishnatakon. Here I am. What hast thou to say? But the Tarkan neither lifted his face from the ground nor said a word. He was shaking like a man with a bad hiccup. He was brave enough in battle. But half his courage had left him earlier that night when he first began to suspect that there might be a real Tash. The rest of it had left him now. With a sudden jerk, like a hen stooping to pick up a worm, Tash pounced on the miserable Rishta and tucked him under the upper part of his two right arms. Then Tash turned his head sidewise to fix Tyrion with one of his terrible eyes, for, of course, having a bird's head, he couldn't look at you straight. But immediately, from behind Tash, strong and calm as the summer sea, a voice said, "'Begone, monster, and take your lawful prey to your own place. In the name of Aslan and Aslan's great father, the emperor over the sea, the hideous creature vanished, with the Tarkan still under its arm. And Tyrion turned to see who had spoken, and what he saw then set his heart beating as it had never beaten in any fight. Seven kings and queens stood before him, all with crowns on their heads and all in glittering clothes, but the kings wore fine mail as well, and had their swords drawn in their hands. Tyrion bowed courteously, and was about to speak, when the youngest of the queens laughed. He stared hard at her face, and then gasped with amazement, for he knew her. It was Jill but not Jill as he had last seen her, with her face all dirt and tears and an old drill dress half slipping off one shoulder. Now she looked cool and fresh, as fresh as if she had just come from bathing, 
and at first he thought she looked older, but then didn't, and he could never make up his mind on that point. And then he saw that the youngest of the kings was Eustace. But he was also changed, as Jill was changed. Tyrion suddenly felt awkward about coming among these people with the blood and dust and sweat of a battle still on him. Next moment he realized that he was not in that state at all. He was fresh and cool and clean, and dressed in such clothes as he would have worn for a great feast at Care Paravel. But in Narnia your good clothes were never your uncomfortable ones. They knew how to make things that felt beautiful as well as looking beautiful in Narnia, and there was no such thing as starch or flannel or elastic to be found from one end of the country to the other. "'Sire,' said Jill, coming forward and making a beautiful curtsy, "'let me make you known to Peter, the high king over all kings in Narnia.' Tyrion had no need to ask which was the high king, for he remembered his face, though here it was far nobler, from his dream. He stepped forward, sank on one knee, and kissed Peter's hand. "'High king!' he said, You are welcome to me. And the high king raised him and kissed him on both cheeks, as a high king should. Then he led him to the eldest of the queens, but even she was not old, and there were no grey hairs on her head and no wrinkles on her cheek, and said, Sir, this is that Lady Polly who came into Narnia on the first day when Aslan made the trees grow and the beasts talk. He brought him next to a man whose golden beard flowed over his breast and whose face was full of wisdom. And this, he said, is the Lord Diggory who was with her on that day. And this is my brother, King Edmund, and this my sister, the Queen Lucy. "'Sir,' said Tyrion, when he had greeted all these, "'if I have read the Chronicle aright, there should be another. "'Has not your Majesty two sisters? "'Where is Queen Susan?' "'My sister Susan,' answered Peter shortly and gravely, "'is no longer a friend of Narnia.' "'Yes,' said Eustace, and whenever you've tried to get her to come and talk about Narnia, or do anything about Narnia, she says, What wonderful memories you have! Fancy you're still thinking about all those funny games we used to play when we were children. Oh, Susan, said Jill, she's interested in nothing nowadays except nylons and lipstick and invitations. She always was a jolly sight too keen on being grown up. "'Grown up, indeed,' said the Lady Polly. "'I wish she would grow up. "'She wasted all her school time wanting to be the age she is now, "'and she'll waste all the rest of her life trying to stay that age. "'Her whole idea is to race on to the silliest time of one's life as quick as she can, "'and then stop there as long as she can. "'Well, don't let's talk about that now,' said Peter." Look, here are lovely fruit trees. Let us taste them. And then, for the first time, Tyrion looked about him 
and realized how very queer this adventure was. Chapter 13 How the Dwarfs Refused to be Taken In Tyrion had thought, or he would have thought if he had had time to think at all, that they were inside a little thatched stable, about twelve feet long and six feet wide. In reality, they stood on grass. The deep blue sky was overhead, and the air which blew gently on their faces was that of a day in early summer. Not far away from them rose a grove of trees, thickly leaved, but under every leaf there peeped out the gold or faint yellow or purple or glowing red of fruits such as no one has seen in our world. The fruit made Tyrion feel that it must be autumn, but there was something in the feel of the air that told him it could not be later than June. They all moved toward the trees. Everyone raised his hand to pick the fruit he best liked the look of, and then everyone paused for a second. This fruit was so beautiful that each felt, It can't be for me. Surely we're not allowed to pluck it. It's all right, said Peter. I know what we're all thinking, but I'm sure, quite sure, we needn't. I've a feeling we've got to the country where everything is allowed. Here goes, then, said Eustace, and they all began to eat. What was the fruit like? Unfortunately, no one can describe a taste. All I can say is that compared with those fruits, the freshest grapefruit you've ever eaten was dull, and the juiciest orange was dry, and the most melting pear was hard and woody, and the sweetest wild strawberry was sour, and there were no seeds or stones, and no wasps. If you had once eaten that fruit... All the nicest things in this world would taste like medicines after it. But I can't describe it. You can't find out what it is like unless you can get to that country and taste it for yourself. When they had eaten enough, Eustace said to King Peter, You haven't yet told us how you got here. You were just going to when King Tyrion turned up. There's not much to tell said Peter. Edmund and I were standing on the platform, and we saw your train coming in. I remember thinking it was taking the bend far too fast, and I remember thinking how funny it was that our people were probably in the same train, though Lucy didn't know about it. Your people, High King, said Tyrion. I mean my father and mother, Edmund's and Lucy's and mine. Why were they, asked Jill. You don't mean to say they know about Narnia? Oh, no, it had nothing to do with Narnia. They were on their way to Bristol. I'd only heard they were going that morning. But Edmund said they'd be bound to be going by that train. Edmund was the sort of person who knows about railways. And what happened then? said Jill. Well, it's not very easy to describe, is it, Edmund? said the High King. Not very, said Edmund. It wasn't at all like that other time when we were pulled out of our own world by magic. There was a frightful roar, and something hit me with a bang, but it didn't hurt, and I felt not so much scared as, well, excited. Oh, and this one queer thing. I'd had a rather sore knee from a hack at Rugger. I noticed it had suddenly gone, and I felt very light. And then, 
here we were. It was very much the same for us in the railway carriage, said the Lord Diggory, wiping the last traces of the fruit from his golden beard. Only I think you and I, Polly, chiefly felt that we'd been unstiffened. You youngsters won't understand, but we stopped feeling old. Youngsters indeed, said Jill. I don't believe you two really are much older than we are here. Well, if we aren't, we have been, said the Lady Polly. And what has been happening since you got here? asked Eustace. Well, said Peter, for a long time, at least I suppose it was a long time, nothing happened. Then the door opened. The door, said Tyrion. Yes, said Peter, the door you came in, or came out by. Have you forgotten? But where is it? Look, said Peter, and pointed. Tyrion looked and saw the queerest and most ridiculous thing you can imagine. Only a few yards away, clear to be seen in the sunlight, there stood up a rough wooden door, and round it the framework of the doorway. Nothing else. No walls. No roof. He walked toward it, bewildered, and the others followed, watching to see what he would do. He walked round to the other side of the door, but it looked just the same from the other side. He was still in the open air on a summer morning. The door was simply standing up by itself, as if it had grown there like a tree. Fair sir, said Tyrion to the High King, this is a great marvel. It is the door you came through with that Kalorman five minutes ago, said Peter, smiling. But did I not come in out of the wood into the stable, whereas this seems to be a door leading from nowhere to nowhere? It looks like that if you walk round it, said Peter. But put your eye to that place where there's a crack between two of the planks and look through. Tyrion put his eye to the hole. At first he could see nothing but blackness. Then, as his eyes grew used to it, he saw the dull red glow of a bonfire that was nearly going out, and above that, in a black sky, stars. Then he could see dark figures moving about or standing between him and the fire. He could hear them talking, and their voices were like those of Kalormans. So he knew that he was looking out through the stable door into the darkness of Lantern Waste where he had fought his last battle. The men were discussing whether to go in and look for Rishtatar Khan, but none of them wanted to do that, or to set fire to the stable. He looked round again and could hardly believe his eyes. There was the blue sky overhead, and grassy country spreading as far as he could see in every direction, and his new friends all round him laughing. It seems then, said Tyrion, smiling himself, that the stable seen from within and the stable seen from without are two different places. Yes, said the Lord Diggory, its inside is bigger than its outside. "'Yes,' said Queen Lucy. "'In our world, too, a stable once had something inside it "'that was bigger than our whole world.' "'It was the first time she had spoken, "'and from the thrill in her voice Tyrion now knew why. "'She was drinking everything in even more deeply than the others. "'She had been too happy to speak. "'He wanted to hear her speak again, so he said, 
Of your courtesy, madam, tell on. Tell me your whole adventure. After the shock and the noise, said Lucy, we found ourselves here, and we wondered at the door as you did. Then the door opened for the first time. We saw darkness through the doorway when it did, and there came through a big man with a naked sword. We saw by his arms that he was a Kalorman. He took his stand beside the door with his sword raised, resting on his shoulder, ready to cut down anyone who came through. We went to him and spoke to him, but we thought he could neither see nor hear us, and he never looked round on the sky and the sunlight and the grass. I think he couldn't see them either. So then we waited a long time. Then we heard the bolt being drawn on the other side of the door. But the man didn't get ready to strike with his sword till he could see who was coming in, so we supposed he had been told to strike some and spare others. But at the very moment when the door opened, all of a sudden Tash was there on this side of the door. None of us saw where he came from, and through the door there came a big cat. It gave one look at Tash and ran for its life, just in time, for he pounced at it, and the door hit his beak as it was shut. The man could see Tash. He turned very pale and bowed down before the monster, but it vanished away. Then we waited a long time again. At last the door opened for the third time, and there came in a young Kalorman. I liked him. The sentinel at the door started and looked very surprised when he saw him. I think he'd been expecting someone quite different. "'I see it all now,' said Eustace. He had the bad habit of interrupting stories. "'The cat was to go in first, and the sentry had orders to do him no harm. Then the cat was to come out and say he'd seen their beastly Tashlan, and pretend to be frightened to scare the other animals. But what Shift never guessed was that the real Tash would turn up, so Ginger came out really frightened, and after that Shift would send in anyone he wanted to get rid of, and the sentry would kill them, and— Friend, said Tyrion softly, you hinder the lady in her tale. Well, said Lucy, the sentry was surprised. That gave the other man just in time to get on guard. They had a fight. He killed the sentry and flung him outside the door. Then he came walking slowly forward to where we were. He could see us and everything else. We tried to talk to him, but he was rather like a man in a trance. He kept on saying, Tash, Tash, where is Tash? I go to Tash. So we gave it up, and he went away somewhere, over there. I liked him, and after that, oh, Lucy made a face. After that, said Edmund, someone flung a monkey through the door, and Tash was there again. My sister is so tender-hearted, she doesn't like to tell you that Tash made one peck and the monkey was gone. Serve him right, said Eustace. All the same, I hope he'll disagree with Tash too. And after that, said Edmund, came about a dozen dwarfs, and then Jill, and Eustace, and last of all, yourself. I hope Tash ate the dwarfs too, said Eustace. Little swine! No, he didn't, said Lucy, and don't be horrid. They're still here. In fact, you can see them from here, and I've tried and tried to make friends with them, but it's no use. Friends with them, cried Eustace, if you 
knew how those dwarfs have been behaving. Oh, stop it, Eustace, said Lucy. Do come and see them. King Tyrion, perhaps you could do something with them. I feel no great love for dwarfs today, said Tyrion. Yet at your asking, lady, I would do a greater thing than this. Lucy led the way, and soon they could all see the dwarfs. They had a very odd look. They weren't strolling about or enjoying themselves, although the cords with which they had been tied seemed to have vanished, nor were they lying down and having a rest. They were sitting very close together in a little circle facing one another. They never looked round or took any notice of the humans till Lucy and Tyrion were almost near enough to touch them. Then the dwarfs all cocked their heads as if they couldn't see anyone but were listening hard and trying to guess by the sound what was happening. Look out, said one of them in a surly voice. Mind where you're going. Don't walk into our faces. All right, said Eustace indignantly. We're not blind. We've got eyes in our heads. There must be darn good ones if you can see in here, said the same dwarf whose name was Diggle. In where? asked Edmund. Why, you bonehead, in here, of course, said Diggle, in this pitch-black, poky, smelly little hole of a stable. Are you blind? said Tyrion. Ain't we all blind in the dark? said Diggle. But it isn't dark, you poor stupid dwarfs, said Lucy. Can't you see? Look up, look round. Can't you see the sky and the trees and the flowers? Can't you see me? How in the name of all humbug can I see what ain't there? And how can I see you any more than you can see me in this pitch darkness? But I can see you, said Lucy. I'll prove I can see you. You've got a pipe in your mouth. Anyone that knows the smell of baccy could tell that said Diggle. Oh, the poor things, this is dreadful, said Lucy. Then she had an idea. She stooped and picked some wild violets. Listen, dwarf, she said, even if your eyes are wrong, perhaps your nose is all right. Can you smell that? She leaned across and held the fresh, damp flowers to Diggle's ugly nose, but she had to jump back quickly in order to avoid a blow from his hard little fist. "'None of that!' he shouted. "'How dare you! "'What do you mean by shoving a lot of filthy stable litter in my face? "'There was a thistle in it, too. "'It's like your sauce. "'And who are you, anyway?' "'Earthman,' said Tyrion. "'She is the Queen Lucy, sent hither by Aslan out of the deep past. "'And it's for her sake alone that I, Tyrion, your lawful king, "'do not cut all your heads from your shoulders,' "'Proved and twice proved traitors that you are.' "'Well, if that doesn't beat everything,' exclaimed Diggle. "'How can you go on talking all that rot? "'Your wonderful lion didn't come and help you, did he?' "'Thought not. "'And now, even now, when you've been beaten and shoved into this black hole, "'just the same as the rest of us, you're still at your old game, "'starting a new lie, trying to make us believe "'when none of us shut up and it ain't dark and ever knows what.' "'There is no black hole, save in your own fancy, fool,' cried Tyrion. "'Come out of it!' And, leaning forward, he caught Diggle by the belt and the hood and swung him right out of the circle of dwarfs. But the moment Tyrion put him down, Diggle darted back to his place among the others, rubbing his nose and howling, "'Oh! Oh! What did you do that for? Banging my face against the wall! You've nearly broken my nose!' 
Oh, dear, said Lucy. What are we to do for them? Let them alone, said Eustace. But as he spoke, the earth trembled. The sweet air grew suddenly sweeter. A brightness flashed behind them. All turned. Tyrion turned last because he was afraid. There stood his heart's desire, huge and real, the golden lion, Aslan himself, and already the others were kneeling in a circle round his forepaws and burying their hands and faces in his mane as he stooped his great head to touch them with his tongue. Then he fixed his eyes upon Tyrion. And Tyrion came near, trembling, and flung himself at the lion's feet, and the lion kissed him, and said, Well done, last of the kings of Narnia, who stood firm at the darkest hour. Aslan, said Lucy through her tears, could you, will you, do something for these poor dwarfs? Dearest, said Aslan, I will show you both what I can and what I cannot do. He came close to the dwarfs and gave a low growl. Low, but it set all the air shaking. But the dwarfs said to one another, Hear that? That's the gang at the other end of the stable, trying to frighten us. They do it with a machine of some kind. Don't take any notice. They won't take us in again. Aslan raised his head and shook his mane. Instantly a glorious feast appeared on the dwarf's knees. Pies and tongues and pigeons and trifles and ices, and each dwarf had a goblet of good wine in his right hand. But it wasn't much use. They began eating and drinking greedily enough, but it was clear that they couldn't taste it properly. They thought they were eating and drinking only the sort of things you might find in a stable. One said he was trying to eat hay, and another said he had got a bit of an old turnip, and a third said he'd found a raw cabbage leaf, and they raised golden goblets of rich red wine to their lips and said, Ugh, fancy drinking dirty water out of a trough that a donkey's been at. Never thought we'd come to this. But very soon, every dwarf began suspecting that every other dwarf had found something nicer than he had, and they started grabbing and snatching and went on to quarrelling till in a few minutes there was a free fight and all the good food was smeared on their faces and clothes or trodden underfoot. But when at last they sat down to nurse their black eyes and their bleeding noses, they all said, "'Well, at any rate, there's no humbug here.' We haven't let anyone take us in. The dwarfs are for the dwarfs. You see, said Aslan, they will not let us help them. They have chosen cunning instead of belief. Their prison is only in their own minds. Yet they are in that prison, and so afraid of being taken in that they cannot be taken out. But come, children, I have other work to do. He went to the door, and they all followed him. He raised his head and roared, Now it is time! Then louder, Time! Then so loud it could have shaken the stars, Time! The door flew open. Chapter 14 Night falls on Narnia. 
They all stood beside Aslan on his right side and looked through the open doorway. The bonfire had gone out. On the earth, all was blackness. In fact, you could not have told that you were looking into a wood if you had not seen where the dark shapes of the trees ended and the stars began. But when Aslan had roared yet again, out on their left they saw another black shape. That is, they saw another patch where there were no stars, and the patch rose up higher and higher and became the shape of a man, the hugest of all giants. They all knew Narnia well enough to work out where he must be standing. He must be on the high moorlands that stretch away to the north, beyond the river Shribble. Then Jill and Eustace remembered how once long ago, in the deep caves beneath those moors, they had seen a great giant asleep and been told that his name was Father Time and that he would wake on the day the world ended. Yes, said Aslan, though they had not spoken. While he lay dreaming, his name was Time. Now that he is awake... He will have a new one. Then the great giant raised a horn to his mouth. They could see this by the change of the black shape he made against the stars. After that, quite a bit later, because sound travels so slowly, they heard the sound of the horn, high and terrible, yet of a strange, deadly beauty. Immediately the sky became full of shooting stars. Even one shooting star is a fine thing to see. But these were dozens, and then scores, and then hundreds, till it was like silver rain, and it went on and on. And when it had gone on for some while, one or two of them began to think that there was another dark shape against the sky, as well as the giants. It was in a different place, right overhead, up in the very roof of the sky, as you might call it. Perhaps it's a cloud, thought Edmund. At any rate, there were no stars there, just blackness. But all around, the downpour of stars went on, and then the starless patch began to grow, spreading further and further out from the center of the sky, and presently a quarter of the whole sky was black, and then a half, and at last the rain of shooting stars was going on only low down near the horizon. With a thrill of wonder, and there was some terror in it too, they all suddenly realized what was happening. The spreading blackness was not a cloud at all. It was simply emptiness. The black part of the sky was the part in which there were no stars left. All the stars were falling. Aslan had called them home. The last few seconds before the reign of stars had quite ended were very exciting. Stars began falling all around them. But stars in that world are not the great flaming globes they are in ours. They are people. Edmund and Lucy had once met one. So now they found showers of glittering people, all with long hair like burning silver and spears like white-hot metal, rushing down to them out of the black air, swifter than falling stones. They made a hissing noise as they landed and burnt the grass. 
and all these stars glided past them and stood somewhere behind, a little to the right. This was a great advantage, because otherwise, now that there were no stars in the sky, everything would have been completely dark, and you could have seen nothing. As it was, the crowd of stars behind them cast a fierce white light over their shoulders. They could see mile upon mile of Narnian woods spread out before them, looking as if they were floodlit. Every bush and almost every blade of grass had its black shadow behind it. The edge of every leaf stood out so sharp that you'd think you could cut your finger on it. On the grass before them lay their own shadows. But the great thing was Aslan's shadow. It streamed away to their left, enormous and very terrible, and all this was under a sky that would now be starless forever. The light from behind them, and a little to their right, was so strong that it lit up even the slopes of the northern moors. Something was moving there, Enormous animals were crawling and sliding down into Narnia. Great dragons and giant lizards and featherless birds with wings like bats' wings. They disappeared into the woods, and for a few minutes there was silence. Then there came, at first from very far off, sounds of wailing, and then, from every direction, a rustling and a pattering and a sound of wings. It came nearer and nearer. Soon one could distinguish the scamper of little feet from the padding of big paws, and the clack-clack of light little hooves from the thunder of great ones, and then one could see thousands of pairs of eyes gleaming. And at last, out of the shadow of the trees, racing up the hill for dear life by thousands and by millions, came all kinds of creatures, talking beasts, dwarfs, satyrs, fauns, giants, kalormans, men from Arkenland, monopods, and strange unearthly things from the remote islands or the unknown western lands, and all these ran up to the doorway where Aslan stood. This part of the adventure was the only one which seemed rather like a dream at the time, and rather hard to remember properly afterward. Especially one couldn't say how long it had taken. Sometimes it seemed to have lasted only a few minutes, but at others it felt as if it might have gone on for years. Obviously, unless either the door had grown much larger, or the creatures had suddenly grown as small as gnats, a crowd like that couldn't ever have tried to get through it. But no one thought about that sort of thing at the time. The creatures came rushing on, their eyes brighter and brighter as they drew nearer and nearer to the standing stars. But as they came right up to Aslan, one or other of two things happened to each of them. They all looked straight in his face. I don't think they had any choice about that. And when some looked, the expression of their faces changed terribly. It was fear and hatred, except that on the faces of talking beasts, the fear and hatred lasted only for a fraction of a second. You could see that they suddenly ceased to be talking beasts. They were just ordinary animals, and all the creatures who looked at Aslan in that way swerved to their right, his left, and disappeared into his huge black shadow, which, as you've heard, streamed away to the left of the doorway. 
The children never saw them again. I don't know what became of them. But the others looked in the face of Aslan and loved him though some of them were very frightened at the same time, and all these came in at the door, in on Aslan's right. There were some queer specimens among them. Eustace even recognized one of those very dwarfs who had helped to shoot the horses, but he had no time to wonder about that sort of thing, and anyway it was no business of his, for a great joy put everything else out of his head. Among the happy creatures who now came crowding round Tyrion and his friends were all those whom they had thought dead. There was Runewit, the centaur, and Jewel, the unicorn, and the good boar, and the good bear, and Farsight, the eagle, and the dear dogs, and the horses, and Poggin, the dwarf. Further in and higher up! cried Runewit, and thundered away in a gallop towards the west, and though they did not understand him, the words somehow set them tingling all over. The boar grunted at them cheerfully. The bear was just going to mutter that he still didn't understand when he caught sight of the fruit trees behind them. He waddled to those trees as fast as he could, and there, no doubt, found something he understood very well. But the dogs remained, wagging their tails, and Poggin remained, shaking hands with everyone and grinning all over his honest face. And Jewel leaned his snowy white head over the king's shoulder, and the king whispered in Jewel's ear. Then everyone turned his attention again to what could be seen through the doorway. The dragons and giant lizards now had Narnia to themselves. They went to and fro, tearing up the trees by the roots and crunching them up as if they were sticks of rhubarb. Minute by minute the forests disappeared. The whole country became bare, and you could see all sorts of things about its shape, all the little humps and hollows which you had never noticed before. The grass died, Soon Tyrion found that he was looking at a world of bare rock and earth. You could hardly believe that anything had ever lived there. The monsters themselves grew old and lay down and died. Their flesh shriveled up and the bones appeared. Soon they were only huge skeletons that lay here and there on the dead rock, looking as if they had died thousands of years ago. For a long time... Everything was still. At last, something white, a long, level line of whiteness that gleamed in the light of the standing stars, came moving toward them from the eastern end of the world. A widespread noise broke the silence. First a murmur, then a rumble, then a roar, and now they could see what it was that was coming and how fast it came. It was a foaming wall of water. The sea was rising. In that treeless world, you could see it very well. You could see all the rivers getting wider and the lakes getting larger, and separate lakes joining into one, and valleys turning into new lakes and hills turning into islands, and then those islands vanishing, and the high moors to their left and the higher mountains to their right crumble and slip down with a roar and a splash into the mounting water, and the water came swirling up to the very threshold of the doorway, 
but never passed it, so that the foam splashed about Aslan's forefeet. All now was level water from where they stood to where the waters met the sky. And out there it began to grow light. A streak of dreary and disastrous dawn spread along the horizon and widened and grew brighter, till in the end they hardly noticed the light of the stars who stood behind them. At last the sun came up. When it did, the Lord Diggory and the Lady Polly looked at one another and gave a little nod. Those two, in a different world, had once seen a dying sun, and so they knew at once that this sun also was dying. It was three times, twenty times as big as it ought to be, and very dark red. As its rays fell upon the great time giant, he turned red too, and in the reflection of that sun the whole waste of shoreless water looked like blood. Then the moon came up, quite in her wrong position, very close to the sun, and she also looked red. And at the sight of her the sun began shooting out great flames like whiskers or snakes of crimson fire toward her. It is as if he were an octopus trying to draw her to himself in his tentacles, and perhaps he did draw her. At any rate she came to him slowly at first— but then more and more quickly, till at last his long flames licked round her, and the two ran together and became one huge ball like a burning coal. Great lumps of fire came dropping out of it into the sea, and clouds of steam rose up. Then Aslan said, Now make an end. The giant threw his horn into the sea. Then he stretched out one arm, very black it looked and thousands of miles long, across the sky till his hand reached the sun. He took the sun and squeezed it in his hand as you would squeeze an orange, and instantly there was total darkness. Everyone except Aslan jumped back from the ice-cold air which now blew through the doorway. Its edges were already covered with icicles. Peter, High King of Narnia, said Aslan, shut the door. Peter, shivering with cold, leaned out into the darkness and pulled the door to. It scraped over ice as he pulled it. Then, rather clumsily, for even in that moment his hands had gone numb and blue, he took out a golden key and locked it. They had seen strange things enough through that doorway. But it was stranger than any of them to look round and find themselves in warm daylight, the blue sky above them, flowers at their feet, and laughter in Aslan's eyes. He turned swiftly round, crouched lower, lashed himself with his tail, and shot away like a golden arrow. "'Come further in! Come further up!' he shouted over his shoulder. But who could keep up with him at that pace? They set out walking westward to follow him. So, said Peter, night falls on Narnia. What, Lucy, you're not crying, with Aslan ahead and all of us here? 
Don't try to stop me, Peter, said Lucy. I'm sure Aslan would not. I'm sure it is not wrong to mourn for Narnia. Think of all that lies dead and frozen behind that door. Yes, and I did hope, said Jill, that it might go on forever. I knew our world couldn't. I did think Narnia might. I saw it begin, said the Lord Diggory. I did not think I would live to see it die. Sirs, said Tyrion, the ladies do well to weep. See, I do so myself as I have seen my mother's death. What world but Narnia have I ever known? It were no virtue but great discourtesy if we did not mourn. They walked away from the door and away from the dwarfs, who still sat, crowded together in their imaginary stable. And as they went, they talked to one another about old wars and old peace and ancient kings and all the glories of Narnia. The dogs were still with them. They joined in the conversation, but not very much, because they were too busy racing on ahead and racing back and rushing off to sniff at smells in the grass till they made themselves sneeze. Suddenly they picked up a scent which seemed to excite them very much. They all started arguing about it. Yes, it is. No, it isn't. That's just what I said. Anyone can smell what that is. Take your great nose out of the way and let someone else smell. What is it, cousins? said Peter. "'A colobin, sire,' said several dogs at once. "'Lead on to him, then,' said Peter. "'Whether he meets us in peace or war, he shall be welcome.' The dogs darted on ahead, and came back a moment later, running as if their lives depended on it, and barking loudly to say that it really was a colorman. Talking dogs, just like the common ones, behave as if they thought whatever they are doing at the moment immensely important.' The others followed where the dogs led them, and found a young Kalorman sitting under a chestnut tree beside a clear stream of water. It was Emeth. He rose at once and bowed gravely. Sir, he said to Peter, I know not whether you are my friend or my foe, but I should count it my honour to have you for either. Has not one of the poets said that a noble friend is the best gift? and a noble enemy the next best? Sir, said Peter, I do not know that there need be any war between you and us. Do tell us who you are and what's happened to you, said Jill. If there's going to be a story, let's all have a drink and sit down, barked the dogs. We're quite blown. Well, of course you will be if you keep tearing about the way you have done, said Eustace. So the humans sat down on the grass, and when the dogs had all had a very noisy drink out of the stream, they all sat down, bolt upright, panting, with their tongues hanging out of their heads a little on one side, to hear the story. But Jewel remained standing, polishing his horn against his side. Chapter 15 Further Up and Further In No, O warlike kings, said Emmeth, and you, O ladies, whose beauty illuminates the universe, that I am Emmeth, 
the seventh son of Harper Takan of the city of Tehishban, westward beyond the desert. I came lately into Narnia with nine and twenty others under the command of Rishta Takan. Now when I first heard that we should march upon Narnia, I rejoiced, for I had heard many things of your land and desired greatly to meet you in battle. But when I found that we were to go in disguised as merchants, which is a shameful dress for a warrior and the son of a Takan, and to work by lies and trickery, then my joy departed from me. And most of all, when I found we must wait upon a monkey, and when it began to be said that Tash and Aslan were one, then the world became dark in my eyes, for always since I was a boy I have served Tash, and my great desire was to know more of him, if it might be, to look upon his face. But the name of Aslan was hateful to me. And, as you have seen, we were called together outside the straw-roofed hovel night after night, and the fire was kindled, and the ape brought forth out of the hovel something upon four legs that I could not well see— and the people and the beasts bowed down and did honour to it. But I thought that Takan is deceived by the ape, for this thing that comes out of the stable is neither Tash nor any other god. But when I watched the Takan's face and marked every word that he said to the monkey, then I changed my mind, for I saw that the Takan did not believe in it himself. And then I understood that he did not believe in Tash at all, for if he had, how could he dare to mock him? When I understood this, a great rage fell upon me, and I wondered that the true Tash did not strike down both the monkey and the Takan with fire from heaven. Nevertheless, I hid my anger and held my tongue and waited to see how it would end. But last night, as some of you know, the monkey brought not forth the yellow thing, but said that all who desired to look upon Tashlan, for so they mixed the two words to pretend they were all one, must pass one by one into the hovel. And I said to myself, Doubtless this is some other deception. But when the cat had followed in, and had come out again in a madness of terror, then I said to myself, Surely the true Tash whom they called on without knowledge or belief, has now come among us and will avenge himself. And though my heart was turned into water inside me because of the greatness and terror of Tash, yet my desire was stronger than my fear, and I put force upon my knees to stay them from trembling, and on my teeth that they should not chatter, and resolved to look upon the face of Tash, though he should slay me. So I offered myself to go into the hovel, and the Tarkan, though unwillingly, let me go. As soon as I had gone in at the door, the first wonder was that I found myself in this great sunlight, as we all are now, though the inside of the hovel had looked dark from the outside. But I had no time to marvel at this, for immediately I was forced to fight for my head against one of our own men— as soon as I saw him, I understood that the monkey and the Takan had set him there to slay any who came in, if he were not in their secrets, so that this man also was a liar and a mocker and no true servant of Tash. I had the better will to fight him, 
and having slain the villain, I cast him out behind me through the door. Then I looked about me, and saw the sky, and the wide lands, and smelled the sweetness, and I said, By the gods, this is a pleasant place. It may be that I am come into the country of Tash, and I began to journey into that strange country, and to seek him. So I went over much grass and many flowers, and among all kinds of wholesome and delectable trees, till, lo, in a narrow place between two rocks there came to meet me a great lion. The speed of him was like the ostrich, and his size was an elephant's. His hair was like pure gold, and the brightness of his eyes like gold that is liquid in the furnace." He was more terrible than the flaming mountain of Lagur, and in beauty he surpassed all that is in the world, even as the rose in bloom surpasses the dust in the desert. Then I fell at his feet, and thought, Surely this is the hour of death, for the lion, who is worthy of all honour, will know that I have served Tash all my days, and not him. Nevertheless, it is better to see the lion and die than to be Tisrock of the world and live and not to have seen him. But the glorious one bent down his golden head and touched my forehead with his tongue and said, Son, thou art welcome. But I said, Alas, Lord, I am no son of thine but the servant of Tash. He answered, Child, all the service thou hast done to Tash, I account as service done to me. Then, by reasons of my great desire for wisdom and understanding, I overcame my fear and questioned the glorious one, and said, Lord, is it then true, as the ape said, that thou and Tash are one? The lion growled, so that the earth shook, but his wrath was not against me, and said, It is false, not because he and I are one, but because we are opposites. I take to me the services which thou hast done to him, for I and he are of such different kinds that no service which is vile can be done to me, and none which is not vile can be done to him. Therefore, if any man swear by Tash, and keep his oath for the oath's sake, it is by me that he has truly sworn, though he know it not, and it is I who reward him. And if any man do a cruelty in my name, then though he says the name Aslan, it is Tash whom he serves, and by Tash his deed is accepted. Dost thou understand, child? I said, Lord, thou knowest how much I understand. But I said also, for the truth constrained me, yet I have been seeking Tash all my days. Beloved, said the glorious one, unless thy desire had been for me, thou wouldst not have sought so long and so truly, for all find what they truly seek. Then he breathed upon me, and took away the trembling from my limbs, and caused me to stand upon my feet. And after that he said not much, but that we should meet again, 
and I must go further up and further in. Then he turned him about in a storm and a flurry of gold, and was gone suddenly. And since then, O kings and ladies, I have been wandering to find him, and my happiness is so great that it even weakens me like a wound. And this is the marvel of marvels that he called me beloved, me who am but as a dog. Hey, what's that? said one of the dogs. Sir, said Emmeth, it is but a fashion of speech which we have in Kalorman. Well, I can't say it's one I like very much, said the dog. He doesn't mean any harm, said an older dog. After all, we call our puppies boys when they don't behave properly. Shall we do, said the first dog. Or girls, shh, said the old dog. That's not a nice word to use. Remember where you are. Look, said Jill suddenly. Someone was coming, rather timidly, to meet them. A graceful creature on four feet, all silvery grey. And they stared at him for a whole ten seconds before five or six voices said all at once, Why, it's old Puzzle! They had never seen him by daylight with the lion skin off, and it made an extraordinary difference. He was himself now, a beautiful donkey with such a soft grey coat and such a gentle, honest face that if you had seen him, you would have done just what Jill and Lucy did, rushed forward and put your arms round his neck and kissed his nose and stroked his ears. When they asked him where he had been, he said he had come in at the door along with all the other creatures, but he had, well, to tell the truth, he'd been keeping out of their way as much as he could, and out of Aslan's way, for the sight of the real lion had made him so ashamed of all that nonsense about dressing up in a lion's skin that he did not know how to look anyone in the face. But when he saw that all his friends were going away westward— and after he'd had a mouthful or so of grass, and I've never tasted such good grass in my life, said Puzzle, he plucked up his courage and followed. But what'll I do if I really have to meet Aslan? I I'm sure I don't know, he added. You'll find it will be all right when you really do, said Queen Lucy. Then they all went forward together, always westward, for that seemed to be the direction Aslan had meant when he cried out, Further up and further in! Many other creatures were slowly moving the same way, but that grassy country was very wide and there was no crowding. It still seemed to be early, and the morning freshness was in the air. They kept on stopping to look round and to look behind them, partly because it was so beautiful— but partly also because there was something about it which they could not understand. "'Peter,' said Lucy, "'where is this, do you suppose?' "'I don't know,' said the High King. "'It reminds me of somewhere, but I can't give it a name. "'Could it be somewhere we once stayed for a holiday "'when we were very, very small?' "'It would have to have been a jolly good holiday,' said Eustace. "'I bet there isn't a country like this anywhere in our world. "'Look at the colours. "'You couldn't get a blue like the blue on those mountains in our world.' "'Is it not Aslan's country?' said Tyrion. 
"'Not like Aslan's country on top of that mountain beyond the eastern end of the world,' said Jill. "'I've been there.' "'If you ask me,' said Edmund, "'it's like somewhere in the Narnian world. "'Look at those mountains ahead, and the big ice mountains beyond them. "'Surely they're rather like the mountains we used to see from Narnia, "'the ones up westward beyond the waterfall.' "'Yes, so they are,' said Peter. "'Only these are bigger.' "'I don't think those ones are so very like anything in Narnia,' said Lucy. "'But look there!' She pointed southward to their left, and everyone stopped and turned to look. "'Those hills,' said Lucy, "'the nice woody ones and the blue ones behind, "'aren't they very like the southern border of Narnia?' "'Like!' cried Edmund, after a moment's silence. "'Why!' They're exactly like. Look, there's Mount Piri with his forked head, and there's the pass into Arkenland and everything. And yet they're not like, said Lucy. They're different. They have more colours on them, and they look further away than I remembered, and they're more... more... oh, I don't know. More like the real thing, said the Lord Diggory softly. Suddenly, Farsight the eagle spread his wings, soared thirty or forty feet up into the air, circled round, and then alighted on the ground. "'Kings and queens,' he cried, "'we have all been blind. We are only beginning to see where we are. From up there I have seen it all. Etin's Muir, Beaver's Dam, the Great River, and Cape Parabel still shining on the edge of the eastern sea. Narnia is not dead. This is Narnia. But how can it be, said Peter, for Aslan told us older ones that we should never return to Narnia, and here we are. Yes, said Eustace, and we saw it all destroyed and the sun put out. And it's all so different, said Lucy. The eagle is right, said the Lord Diggory. Listen, Peter, when Aslan said you could never go back to Narnia, he meant the Narnia you were thinking of. But that was not the real Narnia. That had a beginning and an end. It was only a shadow or a copy of the real Narnia which has always been here and always will be here. Just as our own world, England and all, is only a shadow or copy of something in Aslan's real world. You need not mourn over Narnia, Lucy. All of the old Narnia that mattered, all the dear creatures have been drawn into the real Narnia through the door. And of course it is different, as different as a real thing is from a shadow, or as waking life is from a dream." His voice stirred everyone like a trumpet as he spoke these words, but when he added under his breath, It's all in Plato, all in Plato, bless me, what do they teach them at these schools? The older ones laughed. It was so exactly like the sort of thing they had heard him say long ago in that other world where his beard was grey instead of golden. He knew why they were laughing and joined in the laugh himself. But very quickly... They all became grave again, for, as you know, there is a kind of happiness and wonder that makes you serious. It is too good to waste on jokes. 
It is as hard to explain how this sunlit land was different from the old Narnia as it would be to tell you how the fruits of that country taste. Perhaps you will get some idea of it if you think like this. You may have been in a room in which there was a window that looked out on a lovely bay of the sea or a green valley that wound away among mountains. And in the wall of that room, opposite to the window, there may have been a looking-glass. And as you turned away from the window, you suddenly caught sight of that sea or that valley all over again in the looking-glass. And the sea in the mirror or the valley in the mirror were in one sense just the same as the real ones, yet at the same time they were somehow different, deeper, more wonderful, more like places in a story, in a story you have never heard but very much want to know. The difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you'll know what I mean. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Be Come further up! Come further in! He shook his mane and sprang forward into a great gallop, a unicorn's gallop, which in our world would have carried him out of sight in a few moments. But now a most strange thing happened. Everyone else began to run, and they found, to their astonishment, that they could keep up with him. Not only the dogs and the humans, but even fat little Puzzle and short-legged Poggin the Dwarf. The air flew in their faces, as if they were driving fast in a car without a windscreen. The country flew past as if they were seeing it from the windows of an express train. Faster and faster they raced, but no one got hot or tired or out of breath. Chapter 16 Farewell to Shadowlands If one could run without getting tired, I don't think one would often want to do anything else but there might be special reasons for stopping. And it was a special reason which made Eustace presently shout, I say, steady, look what we're coming to. And well he might, for now they saw before them cauldron pool, and beyond the pool the high unclimbable cliffs, and pouring down the cliffs thousands of tons of water every second, flashing like diamonds in some places, and dark glassy green in others, the great waterfall, and already the thunder of it was in their ears. Don't stop! Further up and farther in! called Farsight, tilting his flight a little upward. It's all very well for him, said Eustace, but Jewel also cried out. Don't stop! Further up and further in! Take it in your stride! 
His voice could only just be heard above the roar of the water, but next moment everyone saw that he had plunged into the pool, and helter-skelter behind him, with splash after splash, all the others did the same. The water was not bitingly cold, as all of them, and especially Puzzle, expected, but of a delicious, foamy coolness. They all found they were swimming straight for the waterfall itself. "'This is absolutely crazy!' said Eustace to Edmund. "'I know, and yet,' said Edmund, "'isn't it wonderful?' said Lucy. "'Have you noticed one can't feel afraid, even if one wants to? Try it!' "'By Jove, neither one can,' said Eustace, after he had tried. Jewel reached the foot of the waterfall first, but Tyrion was only just behind him. Jill was last.' so she could see the whole thing better than the others. She saw something white moving steadily up the face of the waterfall. That white thing was the unicorn. You couldn't tell whether he was swimming or climbing, but he moved on higher and higher. The point of his horn divided the water just above his head, and it cascaded out in two rainbow-coloured streams all round his shoulders. Just behind him came King Tyrion. He moved his legs and arms as if he was swimming, but he moved straight upward, as if one could swim up the wall of a house. What looked funniest was the dogs. During the gallop they had not been at all out of breath, but now, as they swarmed and wriggled upwards, there was plenty of spluttering and sneezing among them. That was because they would keep on barking, and every time they barked they got their mouths and noses full of water. But before Jill had time to notice all these things fully, she was going up the waterfall herself. It was the sort of thing that would have been quite impossible in our world. Even if you hadn't been drowned, you would have been smashed to pieces by the terrible weight of water against the countless jags of rock— but in that world you could do it. You went on, up and up, with all kinds of reflected lights flashing at you from the water, and all manner of coloured stones flashing through it, till it seemed as if you were climbing up light itself, and always higher and higher, till the sense of height would have terrified you, if you could be terrified, but later it was only gloriously exciting.' and then at last one came to the lovely smooth green curve in which the water poured over the top, and found that one was out on the level river, above the waterfall. The current was racing away behind you, but you were such a wonderful swimmer that you could make headway against it. Soon they were all on the bank, dripping but happy. A long valley opened ahead, and great snow mountains, now much nearer, stood up against the sky. "'Further up and further in!' cried Jewel, and instantly they were off again. They were out of Narnia now, and up into the western wild, which neither Tyrion nor Peter nor even the eagle had ever seen before. But the Lord Diggory and the Lady Polly had. "'Do you remember?' "'Do you remember?' they said, and said it in steady voices, too, without panting, though the whole party was now running faster than an arrow flies. "'What, Lord?' said Tyrion. "'Is it then true, as stories tell, 
that you two journeyed here on the very day the world was made? Yes, said Diggory, and it seems to me as if it were only yesterday. And on a flying horse? asked Tyrion. Is that part true? Certainly, said Diggory. But the dogs barked, Faster! Faster! So they ran faster and faster till it was more like flying than running, and even the eagle overhead was going no faster than they, and they went through winding valley after winding valley, and up the steep sides of hills, and faster than ever down the other side, following the river, and sometimes crossing it, and skimming across mountain lakes as if they were living speedboats, till at last... At the far end of one long lake, which looked as blue as a turquoise, they saw a smooth green hill. Its sides were as steep as the sides of a pyramid, and round the very top of it ran a green wall. But above the wall rose the branches of trees, whose leaves looked like silver and their fruit like gold. Further up and further in, roared the unicorn, and no one held back. They charged straight at the foot of the hill, and then found themselves running up it, almost as water from a broken wave runs up a rock out at the point of some bay. Though the slope was nearly as steep as the roof of a house, and the grass was smooth as a bowling green, no one slipped. Only when they had reached the very top did they slow up. That was because they found themselves facing great golden gates." and for a moment none of them was bold enough to try if the gates would open. They all felt just as they had felt about the fruit. Dare we? Is it right? Can it be meant for us? But while they were standing thus, a great horn, wonderfully loud and sweet, blew from somewhere inside that walled garden, and the gates swung open. Tyrion stood holding his breath and wondering who would come out, and what came out was the last thing he had expected. A little, sleek, bright-eyed, talking mouse, with a red feather stuck in a circlet on its head, and its left paw resting on a long sword. It bowed, a most beautiful bow, and said in its shrill voice, "'Welcome in the lion's name!' Come further up and further in. Then Tyrion saw King Peter and King Edmund and Queen Lucy rush forward to kneel down and greet the mouse, and they all cried out, Reepy cheep! And Tyrion breathed fast with the sheer wonder of it, for now he knew that he was looking at one of the great heroes of Narnia. Reepy Cheep the Mouse, who had fought at the great battle of Baruna, and afterwards sailed to the world's end with King Caspian the seafarer. But before he had had much time to think of this, he felt two strong arms thrown about him, and felt a bearded kiss on his cheeks, and heard a well-remembered voice saying, "'What, lad, art thicker and taller since I last touched thee?' It was his own father, the good King Erlian, but not as Tyrion had seen him last when they brought him home, pale and wounded from his fight with the giant, nor even as Tyrion remembered him in his later years when he was a grey-headed warrior. 
This was his father, young and merry, as he could just remember him from very early days, when he himself had been a little boy playing games with his father in the castle garden at Caerparvel just before bedtime on summer evenings. The very smell of the bread and milk he used to have for supper came back to him. Jewel thought to himself, "I will leave them to talk for a little, and then I will go and greet the good king Erlian." Many a bright apple has he given me when I was but a colt, but next moment he had something else to think of. For out of the gateway there came a horse so mighty and noble that even a unicorn might feel shy in its presence—a great winged horse. It looked a moment at the Lord Diggory and the Lady Polly, and neighed out, "Warhard, cousins!" and they both shouted. Fledge, good old Fledge, and rushed to kiss it. But by now the mouse was again urging them to come in. So all of them passed in through the golden gates into the delicious smell that blew toward them out of that garden, and into the cool mixture of sunlight and shadow under the trees, walking on springy turf that was all dotted with white flowers. The very first thing which struck everyone was that the place was far larger than it had seemed from outside, but no one had time to think about that, for people were coming up to meet the newcomers from every direction. Everyone you had ever heard of, if you knew the history of those countries, seemed to be there. There was Glimfeather the owl, and Puddleglum the marsh wiggle, and King Rillian the disenchanted. And his mother, the star's daughter, and his great father, Caspian himself, and close beside him were the Lord Drinian and the Lord Bern and Trumpkin the dwarf, and Truffle Hunter the good badger, with Glenstorm the centaur, and a hundred other heroes of the great war of deliverance. And then from the other side came Cor, the king of Arkenland, with King Lun, his father, and his queen, Queen Aravis, and the brave prince Corin Thunderfist, his brother, and Bree the horse, and Huin the mare. And then, which was a wonder beyond all wonders to Tyrian, there came from further away in the past the two good beavers. And Tumnus the fawn, and there was greeting and kissing and handshaking, and old jokes revived. You've no idea how good an old joke sounds when you take it out again after a rest of five or six hundred years. And the whole company moved forward to the centre of the orchard, where the phoenix sat in a tree and looked down upon them all. And at the foot of that tree were two thrones. And in those two thrones, a king and queen so great and beautiful that every one bowed down before them, and well they might, for these two were King Frank and Queen Helen, from whom all the most ancient kings of Narnia and Arkenland are descended. And Tyrion felt as you would feel if you were brought before Adam and Eve in all their glory. About half an hour later, or it might have been half a hundred years later, for time there is not like time here. 
Lucy stood with her dear friend, her oldest Narnian friend, the Fawn Turnus, looking down over the wall of that garden and seeing all Narnia spread out below. But when you looked down, you found that this hill was much higher than you had thought. It sank down with shining cliffs, thousands of feet below them, and trees in that lower world looked no bigger than grains of green salt. Then she turned inward again, and stood with her back to the wall, and looked at the garden. "'I see,' she said at last, thoughtfully. "'I see now. This garden is like the stable. It is far bigger inside than it was outside.' "'Of course, daughter of Eve,' said the fawn. The further up and the further in you go, the bigger everything gets. The inside is larger than the outside. Lucy looked hard at the garden and saw that it was not really a garden, but a whole world with its own rivers and woods and sea and mountains. But they were not strange. She knew them all. I see, she said. This is still Narnia, and more real and more beautiful than the Narnia down below, just as it was more real and more beautiful than the Narnia outside the stable door. I see. World within world. Narnia within Narnia. Yes, said Tumnus, like an onion, except that as you continue to go in and in, each circle is larger than the last. And Lucy looked this way and that, and soon found that a new and beautiful thing had happened to her. Whatever she looked at, however far away it might be, once she had fixed her eyes steadily on it, became quite clear and close, as if she were looking through a telescope. She could see the whole southern desert, and beyond it the great city of Tashbarn. To eastward, she could see Care Paravel and the edge of the sea, and the very window of the room that had once been her own. And far out to sea she could discover the islands, islands after islands to the end of the world, and beyond the end, the huge mountain which they had called Aslan's country. But now she saw that it was part of a great chain of mountains which ringed round the whole world. In front of her it seemed to come quite close. Then she looked to her left and saw what she took to be a great bank of brightly coloured cloud, cut off from them by a gap. But she looked harder and saw that it was not a cloud at all, but a real land. And when she had fixed her eyes on one particular spot of it, she at once cried out, "'Peter! Edmund! Come and look! Come quickly!' And they came and looked, for their eyes also had become like hers. "'Why!' exclaimed Peter. "'It's England! And that's the house itself, Professor Kirk's old home in the country where all our adventures began. "'I thought that house had been destroyed,' said Edmund. "'So it was.' said the fawn. But you are now looking at the England within England, the real England, just as this is the real Narnia, and in that inner England no good thing is destroyed.
Suddenly they shifted their eyes to another spot, and then Peter and Edmund and Lucy gasped with amazement and shouted out and began waving, for there they saw their own father and mother waving back at them. Across the great deep valley, it was like when you see people waving at you from the deck of a big ship when you're waiting on the quay to meet them. How can we get at them? said Lucy. That is easy, said Mr. Tumnus. That country and this country, all the real countries, are only spurs jutting out from the great mountains of Aslan. We have only to walk along the ridge, upward and inward, till it joins on. And listen, there is King Frank's horn. We must all go up. And soon they found themselves all walking together, and a great bright procession it was, up toward mountains higher than you could see in this world, even if they were there to be seen. But there was no snow on those mountains. There were forests and green slopes and sweet orchards and flashing waterfalls, one above the other, going up forever. And the land they were walking on grew narrower all the time, with a deep valley on each side, and across that valley the land which was the real England grew nearer and nearer. The light ahead was growing stronger. Lucy saw that a great series of many-coloured cliffs led up in front of them like a giant staircase. And then she forgot everything else, because Aslan himself was coming, leaping down from cliff to cliff like a living cataract of power and beauty. And the very first person whom Aslan called to him was Puzzle the donkey. You never saw a donkey look feebler and sillier than Puzzle did as he walked up to Aslan, and he looked beside Aslan as small as a kitten looks beside a St. Bernard. The lion bowed down his head and whispered something to Puzzle, at which his long ears went down. But then he said something else, at which the ears perked up again. The humans couldn't hear what he had said either time. Then Aslan turned to them and said, You do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. Lucy said, We're so afraid of being sent away, Aslan, and you have sent us back into our own world so often. No fear of that, said Aslan. Have you not guessed? Their hearts leapt, and a wild hope rose within them. There was a real railway accident, said Aslan softly. Your father and mother and all of you are, as you used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holidays have begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories.
and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. We hope you've enjoyed this program from Harper Audio. Thank you. Audible hopes you have enjoyed this program.